With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. If you enjoy bands like Bon Jovi, Matchbox 20, Third Eye Blind, Collective Soul, then, you should check out Project Perish. That's right, Tim of Let's Get Jacked Up, and Fringy Spaces, his rock album Project One, is now on all digital platforms. Everywhere from iTunes, Amazon Music, YouTube Music and so much more. Listen to his most popular songs like, Angel, Come Home, and Falling. Once again, the artist's name is Project Parish and the album is called Project One. Go get and download it today. You are listening to the Fringe Radio Network. FringeRadioNetwork.com To follow the people on the show tonight, then please check out our show notes to see their Twitter handles. Thank you. Welcome to Fringy Spaces. Are you ready to enter the fringe? Hey, Warner, it's Aaron Cariotti. Great to have you. Hey, Aaron. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Following your your case uh, very closely, it's so important. Uh, yeah, <laughs> this is yours. <laughs> Thanks. Goodness. Yeah, we've heard from a number of people at University of California. Oh, really? I would, I would be interested offline to uh, hear more <laughs> about that. Yeah, there is a couple of groups, you know... Um, Chris Ray, yeah, sure. uh, you know, I'm, I'm working on his case, uh, and we do have that file, by the way. You know that, right? Uh, no, I hadn't heard that. Yeah, it's it's in Alameda County. Good. Good. And and a number of professors have reached out to us, so I would love to link everybody together. Terrific. Yeah, let's do that. Let's uh, let's have a conversation about the university. Yeah. Can you can you let us know the status of your case, Aaron? Or? So, uh, we just got a ruling from the Ninth Circuit, um, and basically they they upheld, unfortunately, the district court's ruling uh, that uh, <clears throat> under a rational basis review, uh, they 
they don't actually have to examine the empirical evidence on natural immunity. As you know, yeah. it's really impossible yeah. to get a hearing and actually do, do the evidential fact-finding unless you get an intermediate or strict level of scrutiny. So, right. unfortunately, the, the court disagreed with our argument that a constitutional right was at stake. And, you know, we made the argument based on equal protection clause of the 14th Amendment. And the court, of course, cited Jacobson. They they made the strange claim, which I can't wrap my head around, that the Jacobson precedent imposed an even harsher sort of penalty for the 1905 smallpox vaccine mandate in the city of Boston. And my reading of that history is that that's incorrect. It was actually merely a $5 fine, which even if you adjust right. for today's massive inflation, is still only around $160, which is, you know, a far cry from losing one's job and losing one's employment. So um, the, I, I think one of the problems is the court has never articulated a limit to the Jacobson precedent. And we know that Jacobson has been misapplied, for example, in Buck v. Bell in 1927, the infamous case upholding state eugenic sterilization laws. And um, and, and that's a case that has actually never officially been overturned by the Supreme Court. Strangely enough, the laws that it upheld have been legislatively reversed, but Buck v. Bell itself has never been overturned or repudiated by the court. Right. And uh, so, so unless we can establish some claim that there is some constitutional right in principle potentially implicated with a vaccine mandate, then, you know, we're at the point where you can't really argue the science because basically all the institution, in this case, all the university had to show was that they had a plausible public health rationale for implementing the policy. They don't have to show that the policy was narrowly tailored. They don't have to show that it achieved its intended public health purpose. They don't have to show that the benefits outweighed the harms. All they have, all, all they have to say is we had a reason for doing it that at least at the time was plausible. And so, you know, with that, with that standard of judicial scrutiny, um, it's really hard to know how to proceed with vaccine mandate cases. I, the, the cases that have prevailed um, seem to mostly be cases of either, you know, this particular uh, entity not having the authority to institute a mandate or doing it in a way that's obviously sort of arbitrary. Um, You know, a mandate only for people with red hair and not people with brown hair, you know, something absurd like that. Or the the claim that my religious uh, exemption was arbitrarily denied. And with the religious exemption cases, those have tended to go well because there is clearly a constitutional right at stake. There's a there's a clear yeah. First Amendment right, so they have to give those cases uh, a stricter level of scrutiny, which allows you to get into the details about, um, you know, about the the exemption submitted or the policy itself. So. At this point, I don't know if we're going to appeal again, because I don't know that the Supreme Court is in the mood to actually look at mm. the science. It seems like the, the cases they've decided so far, they've steered away from 
actually digging into the empirical evidence and just, you know, focus on procedural issues. And Aaron, oh, I'm sorry, I don't mean to yeah. interrupt you. I don't know how much time Senator um, Johnson has, but he just he just yeah, joined. Let's, and let's dive in. Um, sorry, that was a very get... long winded answer. No, 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 not at all. Question on my case. I just, um, uh, Lara, Lara's trying to join. She's having some technical issues with her mic. So, um, Senator Johnson, can you um, unmute and say hello to everyone? Yes, I unmuted. Uh, hello, everyone. I, this is the first time I've ever, ever used this, so not quite sure how this goes. So I'll, I'll sit back and listen until I'm addressed. That works. I see Steve, you're also on. Steve, do you want to say hello real quick? Uh, sure. Hi, uh, this is Steve Kirsch, um, and uh, I'm I'm here and listening, and happy to to chime in as appropriate. And we have Jan here from the Epic Times. Jan, you want to say hi? Hey there. Is this all working? I hope so. Nice to be here. You're still muted. Okay. It looks like Lara, Lara is um, joining us. I'm gonna. Get her set up as a co-host real quick. Okay. Still muted now? Jan, Jan I, I heard your comments before. This is Robert. Um, so I think you were unmuted. At least that's what my display shows. We're still having technical issues with Lara. I don't know if Jan can hear or not. We also have um, EcoHealth Alliance whistleblower, Dr. Andrew Huff, set up as a speaker as well. If you want to say hi. Hello. Good evening, everyone. I am going to give Lara a call. Um, Aaron, if you want to finish what you were saying, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just wanted to do a quick intro of everybody before. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm pretty much, um, pretty much done. That's the summary of my uh, legal case against the university, although I'm involved in two other legal cases that may be interesting as part of tonight's conversation. Uh, one is challenging Assembly Bill 2098 in California. That's five five of us physicians based in California, challenging what is essentially a gag order on physicians, empowering the medical board to uh, discipline any physician who contradicts the quote unquote current scientific consensus on COVID, which is never clearly defined in the law. Uh, one of the issues with the law is that that definition is not clearly defined and is impossible to know whether you're abiding by the law or not. Um, but the law itself will have a chilling effect as a consequence of that. And we're arguing also that it's a clear First Amendment free speech violation. And, and the other case that I'm involved in is the Missouri v. Biden case, which was filed by the attorney generals of Missouri and Louisiana against several senior uh, members of the Biden administration, many of whom served under the Trump administration as well, alleging that the government has been colluding with social media companies like Twitter to suppress free speech of Americans. Um, arguably, Twitter can deplatform people as a private company, but inarguably, the government cannot do that. The government cannot lean on or suborn uh, other companies to do its its bidding when it comes to censorship. And given the recent Twitter files drop, I think number seven and number eight came out today and a couple of days ago. We're getting a lot of corroborating evidence, and we've gotten a lot of evidence on discovery in our case, that not only is this censorship happening, but the censorship regime is quite vast and 
um, has been operating for several years. And, you know, if, if what we're alleging turns out to be true, this will be probably the most consequential uh, free speech case. Um, it, it sounds it sounds exaggerated to say this, but it may turn out to be the most consequential free speech case in American history because just the sheer number of uh, violations of constitutional rights um, will surpass anything that we've seen before, given just the vast reach of social media and, and the the scope of the censorship regime that um, that's been operating for the last few years. Yeah, we have a uh, state actor doctrine case at the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals against the Smuckers Company. So that's going to get argued the end of January. And then back to Chris Rake's case, we did not uh, we did not allege um, religious discrimination there. You know, even though Chris is religious, he he felt that he had protection under the whistleblower uh, statutes in uh, California and his bodily autonomy. <clears throat> and the whistleblower statute is just that he's warning everybody that this is a bad deal. Uh, don't take this shot. Right. And uh, and he was able to examine that with his uh, qualifications as an MD and came to a conclusion that the uh, that it was da- a danger that needed to be reported and needed to be resisted. So we have a number. We have I think we have seven causes of action in this complaint, but those are a couple of those. I have a general question. So if the president signs the spending bill into law and repeals the vaccine, repeals the vaccine mandate by law for the military, is that something that we can point to in other cases against the government to repeal uh, mandates from other agencies or from the executive, the executive branch? You know, I personally don't think that's something that's going to help my cases. Uh, You know, the issue with us is that, we wanted to bypass the normal administrative processes and say that these companies that are doing this, these violations of rights, are acting in the shoes of the federal government because of bribery, coercion, uh, and other things. So that we're going directly at that issue. But I, I don't think that that uh, the the fact that this changed. I mean, I think there's an environment that we all exist in, so that certainly helps the environment along with all the injuries and deaths that we're seeing uh, as judges uh, begin to know people that have been injured as well. I think that's just happening in all of our personal lives right now. Uh, You know, I think so the environment is important and that context, the longer this goes, I think the better shot we have. But our argument itself is is focused on what's called state actor doctrine, meaning the United States is acting through all these entities and these entities no longer act any, in any way independently. So we can sue as if we're suing the federal government directly. Yeah. The, the court of public opinion does matter in court cases. Judges are more swayed by that than they, or we would often like to acknowledge, but directly in terms of citing precedent, what matters is case law precedent. And when you're arguing in court, you're saying that this law was even either unlawfully passed because of the procedural issue, or there's a higher law, namely the Constitution, that this law contradicts and so can be struck down under some provision, for example, in the Bill of Rights. So if the legislature makes a change, that's good. That's a definitely a positive development. It's a sign that the climate around vaccine mandates is changing and the political will to force these vaccines on the military has, has declined sufficiently um, that 
you know, they, they don't want to try it any longer. They don't want to fight it any longer. So I think indirectly, it's a very positive side, but directly in terms of setting a precedent that could influence other cases in federal court, it's it's not directly going to help that cause. So Robert, we, we've been talking about legal issues, but I'm not sure that that is necessarily on the agenda for uh, tonight's conversation. So I, I don't know what direction you and Laura would like to take things, but uh, maybe you can you can introduce things a little bit and we can uh, we can open up the topic that was on the agenda. Uh, and I'm unclear what that topic was. I was under the impression that Laura, who I think just joined us, um, uh, I noticed her icon and it doesn't seem to have uh, a microphone disabled on it. Uh, Laura, are you there? It looks like she's marked as a listener. So, Lindsay, is there a right. way for you to designate her? I sent her, right, so I've sent her a few requests. And so she just got a new phone is what I found out. And there's some technical issue. So I sent her another invite again to be co-host. So, Lara, if you can hear this, if you can check your DMs, it's going to be in your DMs to accept that. So I, I don't have an agenda here. Um uh, I was I was inferring that Laura is going to drive the bus. Certainly, the uh, um, legal side is fascinating. I've learned um, more than I knew uh, in the last ten minutes about the current status of things. Uh, Aaron, have you had a chance to look at Twitter Drop Eight, which I infer came today? Yes. Um, What's the scope of yeah, that? Yeah, so I, I took a quick look at Twitter Drop Eight, and basically this is um, this is a drop from Lee Fang, who's a journalist at at The Intercept, um, and he's a guy I actually had a conversation with um, a week or two ago on an article that he's working on. I don't think that piece came out, but in that context, I did talk with him about our Missouri v. Biden case. Uh, where we allege government collusion with social media companies to suppress free speech. And Twitter Drop 8, what was um, indirectly about that, basically what it detailed was a, uh, the fact that yeah, the Department of Defense was engaged starting around 2017, going back at least that far, in uh, PSYOPs, in, in sort of military and intelligence grade propaganda, basically standing up what looked like very convincing pseudo accounts or, or bots or some of these pseudo accounts, I think, were manned by people, but were, you know, claiming insider information about military intelligence in some of our foreign wars. And, you know, if there were drone strikes, these these accounts would claim things like there were no you know, they were very laser targeted. There were no casualties of civilians and so forth. So so basically running propaganda for our military. And the the, the revelation that Twitter drops was not that this was happening, um, which, you know, the military, so surprising that they were DOD was engaged in this, but that at a certain point, Twitter kind of gave up on trying to stop it and became more and more cooperative. And Twitter dropped 
seven had a similar sort of narrative in terms of cultivating some top Twitter executives, including this guy, Yoel Roth, who's received quite a bit of attention in these Twitter drops, um, that initially Twitter mounted some resistance to the government trying to kind of suborn it for its own purposes. But but gradually over time, um, many of these executives were cultivated in the same way that the intelligence community would cultivate an asset that they were going to use. You know, you give them access to special classified information. You make them feel like they're part of a more and more elite sort of set of people that have access to specific sort of information and that their mission is very important and, you know, the well-being of Americans depends on it and so forth. And gradually over time, with the Twitter Drop 7, uh, Schellenberger laid out a pretty clear narrative of uh, kind of the ways in which the social media companies and specific executives were um, more or less kind of brought into the intelligence community fold and then instrumentalized and utilized as assets. In the case of Twitter Drop 7, it was about censorship. And in the case of Twitter Drop 8, it was about sort of the government being able to expand the the narrative reach of its propaganda through Twitter by basically wearing down Twitter's defenses uh, against bots and fake accounts and, um, um, you know, sort of backdoor operators that weren't being honest and upright or that were misrepresenting themselves. Um, and so yeah, I, I think the pattern that's emerged from the last two Twitter drops, especially, is that um you know this and probably the other social media companies operating in more or less the same way and engaging in more or less the same way have been gradually over time more and more doing the bidding of um government agencies and quote-unquote deep state operators not just health and human services but um but more importantly uh uh Department of Homeland Security, you know, FBI, yes. CIA, so on and so forth. So, you know, the biosecurity model of, of governance that we saw during the pandemic, uh, but also being deployed in terms of election issues, being deployed apparently in terms of, you know, foreign war issues all the way back to 2017. So, it, you know, the, the story keeps, you keep going down the rabbit hole, the story keeps getting more and more interesting. But, I, you know, I think tonight we, we want to focus on probably uh, COVID issues and maybe start with vaccine issues. So while, maybe while they're sorting, sorting out Laura's issue, uh, I can play journalist to you and just put some questions to you about um, new developments, uh, new information on uh, maybe we'll start with vaccines because there there's a continued boot push for boosters for the bivalent booster at the same time we're seeing some cracks in the narrative edifice with doctors coming out publicly there was one recently a day or two ago i think in australia of course dr maholtra in the uk and others in the uk that he's been pointing to coming out and speaking out against uh, vaccine related harms and vaccine related risks so what's what's your read of the current landscape in terms of the, the the narrative being pushed by our public health agencies about vaccines versus what some other independent voices and other physicians and scientists 
are starting to say regarding uh, the mass vaccination campaign? Well, most notably, we've seen even in retirement, Mr. Fauci continues to uh, assert that um, these products are both safe and effective. Um, In the face of a growing volume of data uh, indicating that to the extent that there is any benefit from the uh, quote booster, the bivalent product. To the extent that there is uh, any benefit from... I'm getting an echo. I think Laura's on that, now, but Laura... Laura's, Laura's just, just joined. Uh, until you're time to talk, that, that would be great. Yeah, we, we may have to do that. Um, so, so we have a situation in which, to the extent that there's any demonstrable benefit associated with the bivalent, quote, booster, it seems to be short-term, and if you draw a line um, uh, through the data uh, in general from all over the world, it seems to intersect um, uh, um, zero benefit at about two months after administration in the multiply inoculated population, after which you see negative efficacy Um, which uh, for the uninitiated is to say that your risks of becoming infected or dying are greater if you have been multiply inoculated and then received the booster starting at about two months post-administration, which underscores the logic of why um, there there are advocates for boosting every two months. So in that scenario, we would receive six jabs per year. Um, is is the empiric data that you move to negative efficacy or effectiveness at about two months after inoculation. And then I think there was a new data set today suggesting uh, fairly clearly that um, the uh, outcome associated with uh, the, the language that's used is natural uh, immunity, that being what is derived from uh, infection of the not previously vaccinated and recovery, the immune response, the broad-based immune response associated with that is is now increasingly acknowledged as being superior both in, in duration and breadth to that associated with uh, the uh, monovalent and now the bivalent inoculations. So, I think we're we're seeing those data from all over the world, and then we're seeing the data that is coming out of the insurance actuaries and uh, the work of Ed Dowd, uh, Theo Shooters in the Netherlands, and others, uh, indicating this uh, tight correlation, increasingly tight correlation between uh, vaccination waves in those regions or countries that employ a wave vaccination strategy and excess all-cause mortality. Uh, So uh, rather than the vague association of uh, increased excess all-cause mortality uh, after the um, availability of the vaccines not seen prior to availability of vaccines, when, for instance, we were all subjected to the pressure of Wuhan 1, Now we're seeing uh, more and more data that allows us to correlate in time 
vaccine waves with following uh, excess all-cause mortality, uh, which is kind of akin to a clinical rechallenge study in that you see these uh, dose-response relationships. Uh, so have I answered your question, Eric? Yeah, no, that's helpful. And maybe just to clarify that last point. So to definitively establish causation, the best way is a double-blind randomized trial where uh, people are, are selected in a random fashion to be either in a vaccine arm or a booster arm in this case versus a placebo arm. That's never going to happen again with these vaccines now that they have been nope. authorized. That So whatever data we have in terms of randomized controlled trial is what we got from the original trials that were submitted to the FDA. Short of that, it's not impossible to establish causation. Um, it's just uh, it's just a little more difficult. But of course, we've established causation for all kinds of things in public health um, where there was never randomized controlled trials. So the, the association between cigarette smoking and lung cancer is a great idea, uh, a great example of that. Um, that through you know somewhat more sophisticated techniques of um, statistical analysis and you know time-based temporal association-based analysis, you can get increasingly closer to establishing definitive causation um, over time, which no one doubts now that there's a, a causal role, role between cigarettes right. and, and, lung and lung cancer. So that, and I that's think, all feasible. I think, I think critical to this discussion is uh, upon whom the burden of proof lays. Exactly. Uh, because here we have a a situation where there is a growing body of evidence that at a minimum one has to conclude uh, there is evidence supporting a correlation between administration and uh, significant uh, adverse events such as death or hospitalization. Uh, and very little evidence of uh, medical benefit or effectiveness in terms of prevention of infection, replication, spread, and increasingly disease associated with administration of these products. So on one hand, uh, we have the beneficence problem uh, that you, I'm sure, can speak to more clearly than I, that uh, we do have evidence supporting significant risk, medical risk. And on the other hand, we have an increasingly weak case that there's any evidence of significant benefit. Do you concur? Uh, it's actually, um, and this is Steve, I'm uh, chiming in here. Uh, it's actually worse than that. Uh, I agree with your point, uh, Robert, about the, uh, the burden of proof. Uh, I just did a survey of uh, a few thousand people, a little over 2,000 people on, on uh, who are followers of mine. But I didn't ask them about uh, their own situation. I just asked them, do you know anyone who died? Um, and if you do, in, in 2021 or 2022, do you know anyone who died? And if so, can you tell me about them? Can you tell me their age, whether they were vaccinated, and the date that they died? And just using that very objective data in 2,000 people, we were able to show through um, pretty sophisticated statistical analysis that um, 
there's not, there's not a possibility that the vaccines are beneficial um, from an efficacy or a mortality point of view. In other words, it's either zero to negative. Yeah. And so we, we actually now have that data. And, and the beauty of the approach that I used is that anyone can verify it. So any health authority, I mean, it took me 20, 24 hours to run uh, the study just because I, I waited for 2,000 responses to come. But any uh, health authority can run this and do the analysis and see that there's no benefit. So it can be replicated by anyone. You don't have to rely on any government statistics. You don't have to rely on uh, surveying um, uh, uh, any hospitals or what have you. You're basically collecting data uh, that can be verified. And it shows very conclusively that there is no benefit. And so if there is no benefit, then the burden is on the authorities to to show us um, how we got it wrong and where this benefit is because it's not showing up in the numbers. And then I did another survey of healthcare providers earlier because there are a small number of healthcare providers uh, or people that work in health healthcare organizations that keep track of the number of people that are vaccinated and the number of deaths. And the numbers vary uh, quite extensively, but in the military, uh, the numbers are large, and it's five to ten percent of of these uh, young uh, servicemen who are extremely fit. Uh, five to ten percent of them are being disabled by the vaccine. So we're essentially robbing ourselves of five to ten percent of our our force. This is about force readiness. Things the wrong way, and hey there, that I'm data is. Is, is pretty compelling. And then the, the final thing is that um, from a death point of view, we're seeing numbers that range from people can see can see no deaths at all. Uh, and some people are seeing like uh, on the order of four deaths uh, per thousand uh, vaccinated. So that is extremely significant because that's a that's um um, in fact, and, and some people are seeing more than that, but four deaths per thousand uh, is essentially a, a million people killed by uh, this vaccine. This, this thing should be halted. It shouldn't be used by anyone. And I actually uh, was talking to Asim uh, Mahaltra uh, this morning about it and, uh, you know, totally agrees. You know, there, there's no reason for this, especially when we have early treatments. So. So um, can um, that seems like a good moment for me to jump in here if you can hear me. Can everybody hear me? This is Lara. Yeah, I can yes. hear you, Lara. Great to have you. Okay, so um, I apologize for the technical difficulties on this side, but I have been listening to you, and I want to welcome everybody. I know it's um, a little bit belated. We've already uh, into the conversation. But since um, since we are at this point, why don't we just jump in head first onto the Twitter files and, um, and address what it is that we learned. Um, I mean, I know that Senator Johnson is on here and uh, why don't we put you in the hot seat, Senator? Um, for those of us who have been following these uh, releases, it's pretty devastating. And unfortunately, of course, typically unexpectedly being ignored by much of the mainstream media. Um, but yet uh, what it lays out for us, I mean, the most striking observation so far is that... Um, I mean, there is no longer any separation between 
big tech and big government and our intelligence agencies, our uh, law enforcement um, agencies uh, have been working with social media to violate the First Amendment and to deny us our rights and to target innocent American citizens and criminalize the First Amendment. Um, is that your assessment? Would you agree with that, Senator? Yes, and it's really what I've been trying to warn Americans about for what, the last four years plus. Um, yeah, I, I started my investigations into uh, corruption within government, really with the Hillary Clinton email scandal. Uh, that same cast of characters in the in the FBI that has exonerated her uh, transferred over to Crossfire Hurricane. That was the corrupt investigation into the Russian Mike, hoax. Jim, yeah, and Jennifer and it, Michael and it, Flynn. And it just continued on. And so I, th I think the the biggest impediment we have across the board is the public's unwillingness to accept the truth. Uh, they, they don't want to really believe that the government could be this pervasively and thoroughly corrupt. Uh, yes. You also have the, the problem with, you know, just basic human nature, never wanting to admit you're wrong. And this is yes. know, really al almost universal. So you know, as I always call it, the COVID cartel, the Biden administration, uh, the federal health agencies, big pharma, mainstream media, and the big tech social media uh, giants, that's the COVID cartel. But, but you basically have the, the deep state across the board. You know, we've seen the corruption of our federal law enforcement, the FBI. You saw the, you know, in, in the Twitter files, you, you're seeing exactly how they suppressed the Hunter Biden laptop story. But not only when it was revealed, they were planning on it for over a year. And they, 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 were, they were playing Senator Grassley and myself, you know, uh, unsolicited briefing. So, again, the, I'm not going to get into the detail there other than to say that this corruption in the deep state is pervasive. But our problem in terms of the vaccine, I mean, I've, I've listened to, you know, talking about data, talking about what, you know, to those of us whose eyes are open, it's just obvious. I mean, this has been obvious to me before the vaccines ever were approved, just reading Gert Vandenbosch's letter to who, listening to Michael Yeadon, you know, then the groups of doctors that I've, I've been, you know, fortunate enough to be engaged in people like Dr. Malone, but, uh, you know, the, the whole cast of characters have testified before my committees. This is obvious to us, and it just frustrates all of us that we simply can't get other people to open up their eyes. The latest example was today. I've got one of my staff members. Mother has been suffering, you know, massive migraine headaches, all kinds of neurological issues. She's talking to her neurologist who admits to her, yeah, this is, you know, I'm just seeing an explosion of cases of this over the last year or two. And, and you know, her mother said, well, so are you attributing this to the vaccine? And he, his reaction was absolutely not. You know, so that, I mean, that's a classic, that is what we're up against. You know, yes. no matter what the evidence, no matter what the data, no, you know, obviously the, the COVID cartel, they can't afford to be proven wrong. They have the power to make it impossible to prove them wrong and you just have across the board, no, nobody wanted to admit that they were wrong to get the shot. I mean, people don't want to hear this. They don't want to hear the dangers of the, of the potential, of the, you know, all the things that 
those of us who are, who are awakened that are listening to Stephanie Senoffs and, you know, uh, Ryan Cole and, you know, I mean, nobody, nobody wants to understand they have a ticking time bomb in their, in their body. So, uh, you know, right now it's, it's, I hate to call it a public relations problem, but that's what we have on our hands. We just, nobody wants to face the truth. Nobody wants to face the facts, including in Congress. Um, so, I, I'm talking to senators who literally have acknowledged they believe they're fac- vaccine injured, but they're not stepping up the plate. Well, I mean, people have vaccinated their children. They've um, had their elderly parents be vaccinated, right? I mean, um, there are many people who uh, who didn't get vaccinated who are looking at, you know, facing the reality that their entire families have been vaccinated and they could be the only ones left, right? And so this is a it is a difficult thing uh, for for um, anybody to face, especially if it's based on the fact that you were lied to, right? And if you if you admit to this one lie, then you have to admit to all the other lies, right? Because if if they lied to us about this, well, then and these people are right. But wait a minute, I thought these people were crazy because what we've seen here. Let's if we go back to some of the beginning of this, right? It's not the very beginning, obviously, for people listening, but. Part of the origins of this are the, the term conspiracy theory. And I think it's very apt that we have, you know, Robert Kennedy Jr. who's done so much work um, since the pandemic began in, in uh, opening people's eyes and in terms of being honest and taking it on the chin. His phenomenal book. Of- book taught us a lot. And uh, about Dr. Fauci, even though it's just scratching the surface. But really, what the Twitter files show us is that it's not since Kennedy have we had a president that hasn't been run and controlled by the CIA. Right. I mean, isn't that what we're looking at here with the Twitter files? I mean, um, do you want to do you want to tackle that, Senator, or you want to pass the ball? Well, no, I, I think that I think that's exactly what we're looking at. It's certainly what I've experienced. Now, again, I, I'm I was chairman of the Senate Oversight Committee. I subpoenaed the FBI for records that the President of the United States wanted released. We could not get those records released. These again, the the, the deep staters view every president as this too shall pass, and they are the permanent government. They are the permanent. They are above the law. I, mean, I just had uh, Christopher Ray before a committee a couple of weeks ago, and I asked him because two and a half years after that briefing in August of 2020, that Senator Grassley and I did not ask for, that was later uh, leaked to the press to smear me and impact the 2022 election in Wisconsin, I still do not know who directed that briefing. We've, we've requested that three times in public letters. And they just and, ignore you. No, and Christopher Ray goes, well, you know, Senator, I'm, I'm sure you can understand. You know, we've got, uh, you know, we've got a, you know, investigations in place, which is exactly what they always use yes. to remain above the law. So these people are the law. They are above the law and they could care less about they couldn't care officials. less. They can no. care less about the public. They are they are the power and they guard it jealously. Well, and what you see, you see that in the Twitter files because, you know, they, they, um, they're not scared to be brazen about what they're doing. I mean, they open up Slack channels to communicate. They're uh, training. Uh, they've got staff inside there that are working with them um, blatantly. They're not hiding it inside Twitter. This wasn't a shock to people working inside Twitter. This is, you know, it's not that any different really from Perkins Coy 
the Clinton campaign's attorneys, the Clinton, Hillary Clinton's lawyer, um, from the FBI having someone in their office. I mean, yep. if it doesn't shock the conscience that the FBI set up an office inside the law firm of a political candidate during, you, you know, uh, one of the biggest political scandals in the history of this country, if, if, that, if they can get away with that, what is it, you know, what do they care that people know that they're operating inside of Twitter? And just re- real quick, you know, I, I started reading Paul Alexander's book, and I, I'm just very early on, in the, I think in the prologue, he's talking about how Fauci, you know, in reaction to his challenging Fauci inside the administration, not publicly, but behind the closed doors, was out to destroy him. And they did destroy him. That is the power these people have, and, and they, they wield that power. And they do it with impunity. They do it with impunity. And um, and they have made sort of an art form out of going after the messenger and ignoring uh, the substance of yep. the message. Right. And that's what we're dealing with here. Yeah. Lauren, uh, Senator, I think you're both absolutely correct. I just want to chime in with two points um, on Laura, what you said earlier, just the fact that it's become so normalized. We've seen that on the documents that we received on discovery in our Missouri v. Biden case, which is all about federal government colluding with social media to suppress free speech and violate First Amendment free speech rights of Americans. And basically what we found is that the scope of what's happening is much deeper, much broader and more pervasive than even we suspected. So at least 17 federal agencies now implicated, not just within Department of Health and Human Services, but also within uh, the Department of Homeland Security and and the Department of Defense as well. The Department of Defense. So to circle back on kind of the the covid related issues, we now know, based on some research from uh, people at the Brownstone Institute, that if you look at the org chart in terms of who was really responsible for our covid response, you would you would assume that it would be our public health agencies, which would be HHS, where we have the right. FDA, the CDC and the NIH. No, in fact, the, uh, the Department of Health and Human Services was subordinate to the Department of Homeland Security, which houses, of course, you know, the intelligence agencies and the FBI and so on and so forth. So the kind of biosecurity model of uh, surveillance and control, which I, which I describe in The New Abnormal and which I argue kind of drove our pandemic response, we got confirmation of that from the research at Brownstone showing that at the top of the org chart was actually Department of Homeland Security. That's further being confirmed by what we're seeing in Twitter files, especially drop number seven and drop number eight that we just got today and, um, and yes. yesterday. And uh, and then, you know, the, 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 the recent kind of hints and, and leaks about the Kennedy assassination um, that showed the theorists right about the involvement of the CIA all along. It, it just makes me um, it makes me a little bit worried, first of all, that Americans have just gotten so used to this idea of, of the deep state and these defense and intelligence agencies kind of running the show behind the scenes and using their special ops, you know, not only against foreign threats, but against the American people themselves, that... Um, you know, unless we have the political will to dismantle this infrastructure, it's it's not going to happen. And even when we do have the political will, um, you know, if they can take out top level scientists and doctors and even even, God forbid, the president of the United States, 
um, you know, we've got a serious problem of uh, Leviathan on our hands that has not been under democratic control for quite some time. And that helps to account for the disastrous uh, results of our COVID policies that, you know, if, if you're scratching your head wondering why policies that obviously haven't worked and have done enormous collateral damage, why we're still doubling down on them. The answer to that question makes a lot more sense when you realize that maybe this wasn't a public health operation in the first place. Maybe it was, you know, a biowarfare preparation or dry run operation or, or, you know, something done for other purposes uh, that haven't been made entirely clear at this point. Well, you know, what's frustrating for everybody, right, especially people who will be listening to this, um, you know, with an open heart and an open mind and sincerely trying to understand something here and look for a path forward. The frustration is we don't know what they know. Right. And it's um, Senator. I mean, I'm sure you come up with this against this all the time, but um, it's like we judge things based on what we know right at the time. And so we give somebody a pass because we don't know any better. But actually, when you start to peel back the layers here, and that's where the Twitter files have been very um, helpful, is you start to see what they did know and what they were doing at the time. And and there's some very basic questions here, um, beginning with why was the Department of Defense so heavily involved in every single aspect of this? And why were they so active in suppressing and censoring? I mean, we've seen the FBI criminalizing the Department of Justice, criminalize the First Amendment, and they're going to continue to do so as long as they get away with it. And when I go up to Congress, I speak to members on the Hill, they say, you know what, when we take a stand um, and we get attacked, the public doesn't stand with us. And then you talk to people in the, you know, in the public and they say, well, there's no, there's no advantage here to standing up because I'm going to get savaged. I'm going to lose everything and nobody's going to stand by me. And so you have, they've, they have this vicious circle that benefits them extraordinarily, but at the heart of it, now we have something, it's not everything, but now we have the beginning of some understanding of the depth of the Department of Defense and the Department of Homeland Security and our intelligence agencies led by the CIA and the depth to which they have their hands on all of this. And as well, you said, Senator Johnson, just, just um, a small point for people who may not know. I mean, when we talk about the deep state bureaucracy, this is actually a physical thing. This is not just something made up. This is the SES, right? The Senior Executive Service, which is a whole category of bureaucrats who are exempt from the rules, the normal rules, who are part. I mean, Obama added, I think, 12,000 people to the ranks of the SES. This is actually something that, that people can look up. It's part of our government. It's not just um, a term that people made up in order to try and understand what was going on. It's based on this bureaucratic structure that is um, absolutely entrenched and immovable. And, uh, and if Congress isn't powerful enough, if elections don't mean anything, if all of our intelligence agencies and our law enforcement, our separate branches of government, you know, are bought into this, then what is the incentive for people to accept a reality that tells them they've got, you know, a death sentence on their heads and maybe they did the same thing to their children? So for, for a couple of points. Um, first, one thing I've learned doing investigations is they're very difficult to do. The, the perpetrators are crying, you know, particularly smart perpetrators. And these people are smart. They don't leave a whole lot of evidence. So they know what the whole puzzle looks like. We just have small little pieces. So that's the first that's thing right. everybody has to understand. Okay. Second, I'm not as disturbed 
about DHS's and Department of Defense's involvement here because they're the ones that actually, in, in the case of a true national emergency, I don't think COVID was one, but you know, it was blown up to be one, okay? In a true national emergency, it's those departments that actually can do things. I mean, the Department of Defense had the freezers to move the vaccine. So there's, there's, there's logical sense to using them. That doesn't, there's nothing necessarily nefarious about their involvement, okay? So I, I, I'm worried less about that than I am the pervasiveness of how effective the deep state was. You know, we mentioned trying to destroy Paul Alexander. Well, look what they did to the writers of the Great Barrington Declaration. You know, look at all the power that Fauci has accumulated over the decades with all those federal government grants. Look at how he... And the money. Right? I mean, yes, that's... And, and yes. look at how he corrupted medical research, all these medical institutions, medical journals. Look at how they're destroying people like Dr. Malone, Dr. McCulloch. Okay? But he didn't do it alone. And, oh, and he's not I, the I mastermind, right? He's being directed. He's just a useful idiot. Well, again, it's, it's, it's the pervasiveness that concerns me the most. And so, Senator, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but this is, I think, will be frustrating for people just listening to you is you're not wrong in terms of the capabilities of our traditional military, our defense forces and so on. Right. We know what they're supposed to do and what they were built to do and how they should and can protect the American people in an emergency. What worries us now about their involvement that's been revealed is not that. It's the fact that they knew from the beginning that this was a lie. They knew from the beginning that this was a bioweapon and they didn't stand up to anyone. They didn't stand up to the Fauci's in this. They didn't stand up to the CDC. I mean, let's face it. We know I knew from day one because I know what the intelligence agencies do. They monitor every single thing that the Chinese do. So the moment they started constructing that lab in Wuhan, we were all over it. The NSA is the jewel of intelligence collection worldwide. You can speak to anyone like Bill Binney, you know, an NSA stalwart who they've tried to discredit as well. Unfairly, you know, that man is a, is a truly heroic figure. And he, they can tell you that there isn't a digital signature on the planet that the NSA doesn't collect and have the ability to store and analyze and utilize. Right. And yet we're supposed to believe that they had no idea how this virus got there. And and we know that's a lie. We know this was developed by a, as a bioweapon. And we know that the United States had their hand in that. Well, yeah. So, so what we, again, what evidence we have is that Fauci was obviously covering up his agency's involvement in the funding of what probably uh, produced the coronavirus. I mean, the, the, you know, that's pretty obvious. Well, that's not exactly the true, Senator. Let me hop in here. So with this one testimony that, that I sent to your office, and I've actually done in a deposition, the funding for this, this gain-of-function research actually began under USAID PREDICT, um, not with Dr. Anthony Fauci. And if you go actually look at the, the understanding that the risk of that coronavirus emergence proposal, they specify that in their own words that this actually began one to two years before Dr. Anthony Fauci was involved. And yes. what is and USAID? Way, I, I, USAID I is a front for the agency. That's what they are. I mean, you want to find the spies that aren't in the agency? They're in USAID. That's one of the primary locations. That's just more evidence that the CIA had their hands on this. And that's absolutely correct. I mean, if you go back and look at USAID history, there's 70 years of failed uh, CIA operations that have went down under the guise of USAID. 
pretending to be humanitarian aid, taking our tax dollars and using it to slit our throats. So again, I, I'm I'm not, and I, I understand that. I just got done reading the book Viral, okay, by Matt Ridley. So I understand all that, okay. What what I'm saying is, and this is what I tried to do a couple of weeks ago when we had our 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 event on on the vaccines, is I'm tr- I'm trying to get people back to some fundamental, you know, building blocks of knowledge that the public needs to know, um, to win that public relations war is to open up people's eyes. And if we get too far down the weeds of what clues are available, who funded what, what agency, again, it's the pervasiveness of the lies. It is, is the, the effectiveness of them as, yes. as opposed to the specific, yes. okay, th- this is the funding agency. I, I'm, I'm, I'm less concerned about that. I'm concerned about it, but less concerned about that than right now. How do we get more people admitting yeah. What happened here? Because we have, well, you know how we you have do to, pre- it. we have you, to prevent f- further harm. Because it's, it's Senator Johnson, the way you do it, the way it has to be done is with the whole truth. That's the problem. I mean, you're not wrong. And I sympathize. I understand, you know, uh, and, and the instinct to stop more people dying is, uh, is a valid one and a noble one and a, a you know, an absolutely necessary one. But at the end of the day, the only thing that is going to get people to stand up and do the right thing and not take any more of this is the whole truth. And if our own deep state you know, was responsible for inflicting this bioweapon, which was a plan with our own leaders to do this, not just to the United States, but to the rest of the world, then we need to be able to expose those agencies and the leaders, the political figures that they were working with, and the medical figures, and we have to hold them accountable. And Lara, because- I, 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 and I, com- I completely agree with that, but I also understand how difficult it's going to be yeah. to dig that information out. So there's easier information to uh, glom onto now to present yes. to the public to awaken them so they're, yeah. so they're ready, to, so they're, they can handle the truth, okay? Let me, let me chime in here, too. Um, I, I want to riff on this chicken and egg problem um, and say that the kind of investigations, Laura, that would reveal uh, the whole truth and manifest it to people, and also the conditions under which people would even accept that truth when it came to light, require uh, things on the part of ordinary Americans. And I, I want to bring it down to the level of, you know, most of the people listening in on this conversation are probably scratching their head, wondering, okay, if this problem is so vast and pervasive, in uh, these agencies and in, in this system that I have very little power over, what can I do as an ordinary American? And I think the first step is to recognize, first of all, what happened to us over the last three years. So circling back to, to COVID pandemic policies, if you see these policies not as just a novel method for trying ineffectively to manage a respiratory virus, and you see them as a new paradigm of governance and control, then you can start making sense out of, okay, what happened to us starting with lockdowns? People were locked down. They were forced to do all of their human interactions behind a screen. They were told that they had insufficient expertise to help manage this crisis. And so they should listen to the experts, which for most people meant listening to the television. Uh, And then you've you've got all, you, you got people getting all their information from their computer screen and interacting with their friends and neighbors only through the computer screen, then it's, it's easy to control the flow of information. Apparently now, if, if you're in bed with the social media companies, 
And by controlling the flow of information, by isolating people, the ordinary American is easier to control. You've convinced them that they're helpless against this novel, invisible, pervasive threat. And the, the only way they're going to survive is by doing what they're told. And we had three years, the better part of three years of this. And if we're going to develop the political will to demand answers, which is the only thing that will empower, uh, whether it's Congress or the courts, to actually investigate what happened and bring it to light, that's going to require that the American people demand answers. And that's going to require that the American people overcome our, our fear and reclaim our ability as citizens of a democratic republic to participate in our own self-governance. And I like to tell people, yeah, you may not be an expert in epidemiology. You may not be an expert in virology, but you are a rational human being in possession of common sense. You can spot a logical contradiction. You can see and observe things with your own senses. I mean, Steve Kirsch's work has been very helpful in helping just ordinary people observe once again, what's happening in my family, what's happening to my friends, what am I seeing with my own senses? Um, what am I observing? How can I learn how to trust my own judgment again? Um, and so I, I certainly don't have all the answers, but I do believe that nothing meaningful is going to happen until ordinary Americans overcome our fear and begin trusting our rationality and common sense again. And, and you know, we look at the TV and we see Anthony Fauci, Fauci or whatever talking head it is, you know, saying something that manifestly contradicts what he said, you know, a month ago with no explanation of why he changed his mind. We can say, OK, maybe this is not a person that I need to trust. Maybe this person doesn't represent the science with a capital T and capital S. Um, and I think we need to find ways to start moving ordinary Americans, including everyone on this Call who's listening in. Well, that's uh, let, let me let, so let me interrupt because that's exactly what I tried to do a couple of weeks ago, and that's why I keep talking about these building blocks of foundational information. The public has to first of all be informed of and then accept before they can move on to the next step and the next step and the next step to understand the full truth. I mean, there's certain things that. You know, we all may be aware of that people are just not willing to accept yet. But when they see somebody in their family who got incredibly sick within hours of, of the vaccine and they start hearing bit more and more cases, their minds start opening up, their eyes start opening up. And that's how you got to get to them. But it's a it's a linear process. It's a step by step. You can't you can't leapfrog too many steps here. You know, maybe some unbelievable revelation might open up their eyes, but I'm just not, we're not going to get those unbelievable revelations because again, these people are good. They're smart. They know what they need to hide. And certainly the Chinese have hid their involvement. Um, but, you know, we're never going to get to the, you know, the smoking gun there. I doubt, uh, you know, you know, maybe uh, Dr. Huff can, uh, you know, enlighten us there, but uh, uh, again, it's, it's a step-by-step -step approach. Wait, can I jump in on this, please? This is Robert. Yep. Yes, Robert. Go ahead. So I've I've been listening to all of this. Um, I'd like to just point a few things out. Number one, Anthony Fauci was not head of the NIH. Or, I'm sorry, of the NIAID. 
Anthony Fauci was head of the entire biodefense complex. Um, he basically gutted the DOD uh, after the anthrax attacks and captured uh, control of what had been the DOD budget for biodefense. And that's uh, um, further demonstrated by the individual that has been selected to fill his position now that he's resigned, who is um, deeply connected to the intelligence community and has been his primary lead uh, uh, lieutenant for managing uh, the whole uh, biodefense biowarfare complex that we have. Point number two, the American people um, are not the only ones that have been subjected to this. What we have observed, and I just saw more validation of that in Austria when I, you know, I just returned yesterday from uh, Vienna on Graz. The same exact policies, procedures, buy off of influencers, etc., happened simultaneously around the globe in the Western nations. What we've experienced here in the United States is not unique to the United States. It has happened in a, in a harmonized fashion globally in the uh, uh, NATO, EU, Western states, and Latin America. Third point, um, we speak of the American people uh, as uh, really, in, in, if you listen to the subtext of what's being said, they have been hypnotized. They have been subjected to military-grade um, propaganda, psychological operations, since before the vaccines were deployed, all the way through this. They have been subjected to the most powerful propaganda and psychological operations campaign in the history of the Western world. It's no surprise that they are cowed, um, hypnotized, uh, um, convinced, because that that a reality is something other than what it is because they've been subjected to i hear various uh budgets well north of 10 billion dollars of u.s government investment in promoting a psychological warfare psyops campaign against them to convince them that uh, uh reality is what we're tossing around this term deep state uh, reality is what these government actors purport it to be and not anything otherwise. So it's no surprise that they have uh, difficulty in hearing any other message. Um, on top of all of the financial co-optation that's occurred throughout the entire biomedical complex. So I, I, I hear Senator Johnson's frustration and I share it. But uh, at the root of this inability of the public to perceive true reality is a, a coordinated, massive global campaign to shape reality to be perceived as that which uh, whoever these actors are, whoever the puppet master is, and I don't know at this point, I, after spending a year writing the book that I just put out, I still cannot say who is behind all this, but there's no question that this uh, COVID crisis, 
this um, uh, campaign uh, wrapped in uh, a, a public health event that is clearly overstated is uh, supporting agendas far larger than uh, that of uh, a vaccination campaign or, or a public health management. You cannot square the circle. The behaviors and actions are not consistent with advancing a public health agenda. They, they make no sense from that context. They have to be understood in a broader sense. But there's no way that the public can perceive it as such because they are bombarded by um, uh, highly sophisticated uh, propaganda campaign. And this is my uh, uh, concern with, uh, to be frank, Senator, with just focusing on the nuance of uh, early treatment or the nuances of the flaws of the vaccine technology or how it's been deployed or the corruption of the FDA, the corruption of the CDC, is this is global and it is way bigger than those nuances. Those are just uh, symptoms of something much larger. So, let me quickly respond okay. because, you know, Dr. Malone, I, I don't disagree with you. You know, uh, you know, two years ago, three years ago, some of you would have talked about, you know, Klaus Schwab and World Economic Forum. I, well, why don't you guys just go over and talk to those people in the corner over there? No more. So, I do not disagree with you at all. But what I'm saying is, in order to get people to accept, the, the larger truth, you, you need to first call it spoon feed. You've got to give them what they will accept. And that, that's my point is you've got to start at a more foundational level. And I, and I appreciate level. that. And what I'm trying to suggest is that um, uh, the bigger picture that I believe uh, the story that needs to be told and is we're being given the ammunition to tell it is that um, this, whatever we want to call it, deep state, administrative state, has waged war against its citizens in the form of this propaganda campaign. Um, and that, that is the deeper truth, is that they, they have employed military-grade psychological operations technology designed for offshore information combat against their own citizens for some agenda that is not yet revealed, but we can all see that we've been subjected to a massive propaganda campaign, and we can see it very clearly uh, in the form of the Twitter files and uh, this concurrent truth of Tucker Carlson's and Bobby Kennedy's that yes. uh, the CIA has been at the center of manipulating um, our whole reality space. That's I mean, right. That's that's the underlying truth is we've been living a lie since the early 1960s, a lie about the integrity of the U.S. government. Every single president, every single CIA director since the assassination of JFK has known that this was the intelligence community that did this and they have done nothing and they have obfuscated, blocked, um, uh, and, withheld and lied about the data. It. And they've, they've done more than nothing. They created the term conspiracy theory to suppress any conversation about it. 
and to suppress the public's curiosity and to control people. And then on top of that, you know, how many people have they gotten rid of that we don't know about, right? Because they, they knew too much or they looked in the wrong places or, you know, and so on. And, um, and I just want, there's one thing, important thing that I, I, I think on behalf of people listening to this, I need to say is that in spite of this very sophisticated, well-financed, uh, effective propaganda campaign, millions of people are not deceived. So we spent a lot of time on this call talking about all the people who are still deceived. And I understand, you know, Senator Johnson, you have your hands full. You're on the Hill. You're in the heart. I mean, goodness, in in Washington, D.C. and Maryland, I think it's 80 percent registration uh, for, you know, political party is Democrat. And so, you know, you're in the heart of of denial where you are. Right. But the rest of the country and the rest of the world doesn't live in that place. There are millions of people and it, that see the truth and COVID more than any other single subject, because I share your frustration with Crossfire Hurricane and the whole Russia collusion lie and, you know, the Ukraine impeachment lie. I mean, there's been one after another after another. You, you, you know, it can really um, it wear you down um, because you just you can see the truth is obvious if you're not blinded by ideology. And or under some kind of spirit of deception, as as uh, Pastor said to me this last week. But in spite of all of this, people see the truth, and they do use their judgment. They do use their instincts. They do know that I may not be a virologist or a doctor, but I can tell that this doesn't add up. That you know, one minute you're telling me this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated, and now all these people are vaccinated, and they're all the ones in the hospital. You know, um, so it's it. There is. This is the unifying issue, COVID. What what I'm disappointed in and what I'm surprised by, and, you know, maybe Dr. Malone or, you know, uh, one of the other doctors here wants to jump in, but I'm just surprised because I thought that when you watched people die in front of you, that when you watched the vaccine injured, I mean, for me, when I see the vaccine injured and I see young Maddie and I see what's happened to her and I see the other videos or I hear a parent crying out because their child is dead. Um, and you look at the numbers at VAERS and you look at what's happened all over the world where vaccines are being rolled back. You know, my heart just stops as a, as a mother and as a human. And, and yet, um, you know, I know that, for example, I know people in PR, Trevor Fitzgibbon, he sends stuff to 60 Minutes and he's got read receipts on his emails and they, they know it's about the vaccine injury. That's the headline. And they don't even open it. They won't even look at it. That's how far we have traveled from being a real uh, mainstream media has traveled from being real journalists. And I say to people, but it's like going onto the battlefield in the middle of the Second World War and asking the Nazis why they didn't cover your victory uh, on the battlefield the previous day. I mean, they're not working for the American people anymore, you know, and that's the problem is neither are these institutions. And what, what we're finding out in the Twitter files is that we're not crazy. We're not conspiracy theorists, as the CIA wants uh, people to believe. And I mean, I, you know, Senator, I know you don't have the luxury of doing this, but I stopped caring what people who don't want to face the truth. I stopped caring what they think. And, you know, and I don't I don't worry about the systems and the structures that they've created because um, I can't control that. I can only uh, I mean, my job is to try to get the whole truth. And that's, you know, there's other people like Christine um, my friend Christine Dolan, who is an amazing journalist who has been digging into COVID for a long time. I mean, and she's like um, 
She's like a honey badger. She never lets anything go. There are journalists out there. There are brave doctors out there. Some of them are on this call. There are people willing to stand up and focusing on all the people who are not um, makes us lose hope. And it also distorts the reality because part of this very sophisticated propaganda campaign has been to convince us that these people are the majority just because they have power and because they have the microphone doesn't mean they're the majority. When you look at the defeat, the mandates marches, when you look at the anti-lockdown protests all over the world, you know that the power of the people is what they fear because the politicians, I'm sorry, they're weak and they're scared. And some of them are deceived because they're just ordinary people and they're not going to stand up and do anything. And they've got 3 million people bearing down their necks, like on the streets of Brazil. No, I, Laura, yeah. I disagree. They still won't do anything. Um, Maybe, when you yes. look at, you when you look right. at what's happened in the EU around yeah. Brussels, look at what's happened with the farmers. Look at the wheat, the Canada, New Zealand, and significantly Australia are now client states yes. of, of the World Economic Forum, of this thousand largest companies. What, 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 we've been ex- what we've been subjected to is a long-term, a relentless campaign to gather power and capital on the part of a tiny fraction of the population. And it has been ruthless, continuous. And in terms of my profession, clinical research, regulatory affairs, um, the entire biomedical complex, it has been completely compromised. All of the journals, it's profound what they've been able to accomplish. Um, And yet, even in the face of that, as you point out, we only have 11 to 14 percent uptake of this bivalent, quote, booster. Yes. That is completely ineffective. We are. You're right. We we I completely concur that we need to emphasize the positive also. And keep in mind that um, it only took less than 10 percent of the population of the United States to overthrow the Mad King. Um, That's right. It is historically true that the vast majority of the population just wants to follow. They want to be told what to do. And you only require a vanguard of 10 percent or less that are aware, awake, um, activated in order to uh, promote an alternative to the um, uh, forces uh, that are trying to uh, shape us into a new, uh, literally a new world order. They've been talking about it for a long time. Uh, And here we have it. It's being deployed very actively. And we can see the steps. We can see the central bank digital currency being test fired. We can see the digital IDs. We can see the G20 all buying off on digital passports in order to have travel. We can see the beginnings of the deployment of of individual carbon credits to restrict our travel, our purchases, and all of our activity. We can see what Justin Trudeau and his finance minister, Christopher Friedland, deployed in response to the truckers, that being complete lockout of their own bank accounts. We know this is coming at us. And um, I, I, I think in some, 
what needs to be recognized is we are experiencing a form of warfare. The phrase that's used to describe it is fifth generation war, which is all about control of people's minds and emotions. Twitter has is one of the social media tools that have been specifically designed and empowered for this purpose. That's why I found all this fascinating, all this jabber. Well, Again, and if any, yeah. if, if anybody Twitter, wants Twitter to, Twitter is not let me, a business. Let me just Twitter uh, is a weapon. Okay, so let me just yeah. um, jump in there. Uh, if you, for people who are not familiar with fifth generation warfare, General Michael Flynn and Boone Cutler, who was in psychological uh, operations psyops for many many years, have written a book called The Citizen's Guide to Fifth Generation Warfare, and it is uh, it just came out, and it is very significant. Um, it puts it in terms that I think um, really will help people understand if it seems like every time you turn around, you're fighting on a different front, it's because you are, because in fifth generation warfare, they're taking over the, you know, the colleges, the education of kids, the medical institutions, the, as you said, it's pervasive. It's the same thing across the media, whether it's Hollywood or it's the music industry or it's the publishing houses or it's the magazines or it's the news agencies. I mean, it's, um, you're dealing with the same thing and it's, and it spreads across to the PR agencies and then you know the corporations and the law firms there's organizations like 65 um i think they're called 65 stories but they are they they just all they do is go after attorneys and file ethics violations if they dare to take a case you know say representing kyle rittenhouse or a conservative cause right they've created structures and counter structures and yet the vast majority of people i'm not saying this to be positive i'm saying this because part of the deception is to make us believe that we're not in the majority, that most people don't want to face the truth and most people don't know, want to know what's happening. But as the stat that you pointed out, um, you know, 11% don't want to get the booster. It's even less when you go around the world. I'm, I mean, I'm South African, you know, and uh, in South Africa, I mean, people barely got the vaccine, let alone the boosters, which Just is so. why they don't have the health crisis that, that more vaccinated countries do. The one thing I want to point out here real quick, though, is whatever we've been doing for the past six months, year, year and a half, it's working. The, narr the narrative has shifted. I think more, pe more people are coming on to our side of the battle, our side of the camp, however you want to frame it. I actually agree with Senator Ron Johnson. There's a big education problem or a big education gap we have to get over with maybe another 5 to 10% of the population. We have to get those people onto our side. Otherwise, we're not going to make any progress against this complex beast that we're up against. Yeah, first the, of all, that, the historical perspective is, is very important here, and I just want to offer a few thoughts there. I agree with Andrew. People are coming over to our side. In terms of the public mainstream narrative, uh, very few people will support lockdowns anymore. Almost no one will support school closures. It's, it's much more possible uh, now to question safety and efficacy of vaccines than it was a year ago. So there is a shift happening in the conversation. But I, I, I think the other thing that we need to recognize, and this is not to have a naive or Pollyannish optimism, I actually think things are going to get worse before they get better. But if you take the really long view of history, any regime that is built upon lies eventually collapses under the weight of its own contradictions. That's the good news. The bad news is that with lots of tools of power at, at your disposal, you can prop up a regime built on lies for a very long time. So the Soviet 
Soviet communism is probably the prime example of that from the 20th century. Nazism collapsed much more quickly. Italian fascism collapsed much more quickly. But from whatever it was, 1917 to 1989, you had this regime that obviously destroyed countless lives and did enormous collateral damage while it was able to prop itself up, uh, even under the weight of its own contradictions. And so I think the question for us, and it's a very, very hard question, is how do we manifest those contradictions and and, and force the regime to collapse sooner rather than later to try to minimize the collateral damage? Aaron, the answer, I believe quite strongly and, and master fifth generation warfare. Um, We're already doing it. We're doing it in the form, for example, of this teleconference, but we need to comprehend what it is and implement it because it's, they are trying to um, shape the uh, belief system, knowledge and emotions of the general populace using techniques in which they're, Activities are shrouded. That's the core of fifth gen warfare is that the leadership is not visible. The energy is low and it is uh, designed to force, we call it narratives or belief systems or whatever, or cultures into the general population as a way to capture the uh, battlefield, which is minds. And we can, if we understand those techniques, we are already employing many of them and we can employ them much more effectively, particularly once we have yeah. cracks like the increasing openness of Twitter. Yes. And, and what we learn and what is now exposed from the Twitter files, they can't deny that they were working um, inside Twitter. They can't erase the emails, right? They can't erase, they they may not be able to reach everybody. You may uh, still have, you know, CBS, NBC, ABC, and all them in denial, but they can't change the truth. And uh, and when people, um, you know, when, when you look at Sri Lanka, you want to know what it is that people can do. I don't know, Senator Johnson. I, I feel for you in many respects because it's bricks in the Grand Canyon up there. But when I, you know, if the GOP isn't going to come in on day one and impeach Biden, Harris and Merrick Garland and Christopher Ray, then they're, you know, the signal that and I know people say, well, they don't. You know, no, Miocas is just, I mean, I mean, he, he's worthless, but it's, if you really want to go, it's got to be the Justice Department and law enforcement, because what is terrorizing the average American is, you know, what happened on January 6th, that you had a deep, a deep state operation that was plain for everyone to see. I mean, even there's videos of people that day, you know, chanting fed, 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 right? Because they know as this person is trying to tell them to do things that are illegal, they know they're being set up. Even in real time, they knew they were being set up. And you've got 92 or so Americans behind bars who've never been convicted of a crime, never been convicted, never had their day in court. And some of them are in solitary confinement, have been there for, you know, two years almost. And they're denied all visits to their families. We treat serial killers and foreign terrorists better than we do the prisoners of January 6th. And and you don't hear senators and governors on either side of the aisle ever you know, uh, coming together to say we're not going to allow this to happen. Right. So, any so, so, so let me quick jump in here, and then I see Jan's got his hand up. So let me make a couple points. The reason you don't see 
other politicians coming forward is because those of us that have our eyes awakened are still a minority. You don't have the enormous public pressure giving elected officials the courage. So, you know, again, you know, the fifth generation warfare, those folks are winning. Okay. I guess my uh, bit of optimism here is I've been pointing out the fact that we have been affected because there is such a low uptake on these uh, boosters and with children, that type of thing. And COVID, COVID has given us an opportunity for people to see the greater truth because these truths are pretty obvious. But again, it's, it's still not a majority. It's not, you know, there's a majority of people that are at least starting to question, which is why they're not taking the vaccines, but to see the whole truth, we're still in a minority, but I think uh, Jan wants to say something here. Um, I just, actually, I want to echo a bit of what Senator Johnson just said. I mean, there's, I, I, it, it takes uh, multiple steps for people. I'm, I'm a pretty, I don't know, conservative, not in, <laughs> not in the left-right sense, but it, t- it takes me a while, to, uh, you know, as, as a journalist to kind of accept a whole series of facts and understand what they mean. Um, and maybe I was, you know, slower than some of the people here in understanding some of the some of the realities that we're facing. It was a step-by-step process, and I think that, that a lot of people need to go through that step-by-step process and, you know, figure out what the puzzle pieces actually mean, whether they're, you know, it's, it's as, the extent is as great as Lara and, and Robert are, are saying right now, or, is, or it's something else, or it's actually just, you know, an emergent property. There's, there's, there's a lot of ways that one can explain this. There isn't just one, there isn't just one answer and people need to have the ability to, to go into that, to have that exploration for themselves. Right. So this is the thing I wanted to share. Um, what strikes me is that, and this is this is a terrible reality, and I find it I find it horrific actually. Is that I'm convinced that this you know based on the work of some of the people here and some actually you know um, and and some of the doctors that I've interviewed over the past few years is that the scale of the harms is great. The scale of the harms is is, is caused by these by these genetic vaccines is massive, and this is I think part of the reason why. You know, this, these uptakes are low because people basically everybody knows someone, something's happened. You know, the the the, the be safe data shows, you know, I think it's like seven or eight percent very hospitalization level reactions. I mean, that is that is an unbelievable percentage, right, for, for, for a product that, that that's on the market that's been deployed to, to billions of people. Right. So, so you know, it, it's horrific. And I feel like this is also the 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 opportunity in a way, because because there's no way to hide it. The excess mortality is massive. It's it's connected with this. The the mechanism of action exists. Multiple mechanisms of action exist, um, and and it's just happening. And and you know this this is the thing that that we will that that people will have to notice. There's no way to hide it. There's no way. And and with the, there will be there's the question. Okay, so how the hell did this happen? Right, and that's the point at which the, this bigger picture that many of you have been you've been discussing this evening can be, I guess, revealed or discussed or understood. Um, I think. Yeah, that's my you, two bits. Jan, so I, I think that's right. I, I think that the scale of the harms is both an opportunity for individuals to to wake up and to start asking questions, 
But it's also part of the reason why it's challenging for people to accept the truth, because, you know, if you've just been going along watching CNN and, and sort of just passively absorbing what's been coming at you, and then you were to listen in on this conversation and the, the sort of explanation or thesis that's been put forth here, for most Americans, it's just too overwhelming and too terrifying to, to think that I can't trust our public health agencies or our government or that the level of corruption is really this deep. And as a psychological defense against that and against the, the, the terror induced by, um, uh, by, by reality, people, I think, willfully, consciously, unconsciously, whatever, just, just choose to, um, to decline to look. So, and so know, that's a that's a that's a really hard problem. I mean, I wrote I wrote a book to explain why I got fired from the university after challenging the vaccine mandate. And the subtitle of the book ended up being the rise of the biomedical security state. And I realized to explain what happened during the pandemic, you have to explore these bigger questions. But, you know, an interviewer recently told me it's it's reading. It's like nonfiction Orwell. And I said, well, I didn't set out to write nonfiction Orwell. I just set out to tell the truth. But the truth is very difficult to swallow. And I think this is why this is why a both and approach Senator Johnson's kind of bring people along and give them the next step of, of what they're able to recognize and accept. But also efforts like this to really tell the big picture and to to those who are open to listening and considering it, uh, you hit, you, you know, you hit the very high level uh, kind of global issues. Um, I, I don't think these two approaches are in contradiction. Um, I think they both need to occur that the sort of uh, step by step, slowly leading people up the inclined plane and the, the big, powerful, shocking revelations and different people are, are going to you know, be in different places in terms of their willingness slash psychological ability to uh, you know, to consider both of those um, modes well, of trying to tell the truth. Let me let me put a, um, a couple of questions out here. Um, you know, there are some key players that we have not heard from for a while. Like, I mean, for example, Ralph Barrick, right from Chapel Hill University, who uh, did this gain of function research for uh, the NIH and Dr. Fauci. He's got a lot of the answers, and yet. You know, he just gets a free pass, right? Nobody's talking about oh, him. He gets more than a free pass. He gets more funding. Yeah, he gets well, more funding. Well, the same goes and- for Dr. Dasik. I mean, all these people involved, they they can they continue to receive more funding. And they're the key players in all this disaster and travesty that's happened to us. And so my point there is, you know, uh, Senator Johnson, are we going to see people like uh, Ralph Barrick and Peter Danzig? Are they going to have to, you know, come before Congress and explain what they were doing and what their relationship with Wuhan was like and why they were saying things before this even happened that indicated they knew exactly where we were headed? Well, if we would be in the majority in the Senate and I'd be chairman of the Permanent Subcommittee Investigations, absolutely. I'm trying to talk the current chairman, Senator Ossoff, into exploring these things. And by the way, he's cooperated a little bit. We're the ones uh, working together. We, we got the 400 pages of... Uh, Fauci's emails unredacted. We're down to the last 50 pages. We, we don't get them handed to us. We have to go into a reading room 50 pages at a time. We're down to the last 50 pages. HHS will not let us see those unredacted pages. So we know where the good stuff is. You know, we're, we're working with Jim Jordan. We're working with people in the House. Uh, you know, Rand Paul's interested in the origin story. 
we may get some bipartisan support for that. So, uh, you know, I, I think I think we'll get some answers to this. But you know, quite honestly, you know, read the book Viral. I mean, the answers are hiding in, in plain sight in many cases. You know, I think Dr. Huff can certainly attest to that, too. I mean, there's there are things we just may never know. I think there are things destroyed at Wuhan. But, uh, you know, we're getting productions out of some of these universities. But as I said, these investigations are not easy. People know what they did. They know what they don't want disclosed. And they don't disclose it. You know, if there's yes. 5,000 pages turned over to you, you know, they'll hold the, the 10 pages that really got the good stuff in it. Uh, well, Johnson, what we're, we're going to receive, if even if you get the House to hold those hearings, we've already had a foreshadowing of what we're going to hear. With Anthony Fauci saying, "I don't remember." I don't remember. I don't times. recall. I don't remember. I don't recall. It's going to be the same thing over and over. That's why you need documents. I mean, I always hear these people call them in before Congress. It's meaningless if you don't have documents. And Lindsey Graham did that with the FBI. I kept telling him, "Until we get the documents, holding a hearing is useless." You held the hearing and everybody dodged it. You know, again, you need documents. You need okay, proof. so then if they withhold so, the documents, like the FBI has done over Seth, Seth Rich's death, first they denied they existed. They, they've managed to hold on to them. So then you never have the hearing. I mean, what the, what people are what they hear when they hear these things over and over again and they see no action and they see nothing changing. They lose they lose faith in these institutions. So then what you're, you know, what you're, what are, what are our options then? Can I, can oh, I wait? Yeah, listen, here. You can, you can still hold hearings. You can kind of put people on the spot if they're, if they're well thought out. There's no doubt about that. But you can also prompt whistleblowers, which we're getting. A lot of FBI guys coming in I forward, have, but I have a recommendation that I'd like to put forward. So Senator Johnson, would it be possible to FOIA uh, HHS and find out what classified systems that Anthony Fauci had access to? That'd be the first step. Then the second step would actually then have a closed briefing, top secret, and then take a look and see what were in those communications with someone like the Department of Defense. How about how about we stop funding all of this? How about we just say, put your money in escrow in the states? How, there are enough Republican you, states. If it comes down to, I hate saying Republican or Democrat because those are those are fake constructs in themselves. In in, in fifth generation warfare, it's it's not. That's their terms. Why do we pay taxes to do this? Why do Republicans not take a stand? Why do not all the governors stand together? All the Republican governors, all the Republican senators, why don't they stand together and take a unified position and stop paying the taxes, let their people pay them into escrow accounts in the state so that people don't run afoul of the law and because, stop funding Fauci and, and well, the NIH the American and all these programs? That, that's that, that, why, because that's the American part. people are not demanding it. Well, and, you know, and that's you can't why just, you can't just blame it on that. If you had American leaders standing up talking yes. about it, well, yeah, and and well, there well, 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 you know, a significant so, fraction on both parties are co-opted. Yeah, all all the general public needs right now is plausible deniability. All all the administrative state has to do is provide plausible deniability, and no one will wake up. Because no one wants to wake up in that, uh, whatever it is, 40 or 60 percent of the population that is asleep and just wants to go about their daily life. They don't want to be bothered. They don't care about what Klaus Schwab says. They don't care about Anthony Fauci. And all they need to do is be given uh, a story, a uh, narrative that they can accept that will provide the necessary cover 
and they're never going to question it. Over. And Larry, first of all, I'm, I'm not going to defend my colleagues. I mean, if you want to insult me, say you guys, okay? <laughs> I'm not of this world. I'm, I'm not. I, I was never involved in politics. So I ran for the U.S. Senate and became a U.S. Senator. This place drives me nuts, okay? Um, but, you know, so I'm not going to defend the politics. But if you say, why not defend this? Are you are you not watching what's happening with this grotesque omnibus bill? Yeah. Yes. I mean, one thirty in the morning, yeah, this morning, dropped. 4,155 pages, and we had, I think, 20 Republicans vote for that pig together with every fifth, with all 50 uh, Democrats. So, yeah. you know, but there's, uh, okay, Senator Johnson, there's got to be something that people can do. Because, you know, I get, uh, I get Laura, frustrated by hearing all the time is. about what won't work. We can't do this. We can't do that. This won't work. That won't work. I went through it with Afghanistan, with the disastrous withdrawal, you know, and I'm still living with photographs and videos and letters every day of people that we trained, that we spent 20 years sometimes fighting alongside us, being executed and tortured and murdered, and no one did a thing about it. And they stood up and they lied and they lied and they lied and they got away with it because it didn't affect Americans the way COVID affected them. But I don't ever hear anyone talking about what we can actually do beyond, you know, we had hearings into Benghazi and you mean to tell me they couldn't find anything? They couldn't dig anything up? They couldn't actually figure out the truth about what happened there. We had hearings into the IRS and we let Lois Lerner just say that, that they lost everything. We, we, had, we allowed the FBI to limit the investigative window into Hillary Clinton's emails to four and a half seconds and allow Susan Rice, who wasn't even her attorney, to come in and claim attorney-client privilege. Hey, you know, hey Lara, 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 nobody can out-frustrate me, okay? Not even you. <laughs> Trust me, you cannot out-frustrate me. So, no, I, I'm, you know, I understand the frustration. I, I truly do. And all, all I can do is try and push the truth. I think most people who know me, who've been involved in me, realize I've been pretty fearless. I have yes, not worried about have. the politics of it. But, mm -hmm. the, the fact, but the fact of the matter is, you know, I just, was, I just ran for re-election, won by the slimmest margin, when it shouldn't have even been close. I mean, there's, we, there's the reality situation. If we believe situation. the results. I mean, I mean how bad does that have to get? Failures. I don't believe any of right. those results. What? I travel the length and breadth of this country and even across California. I struggle to find people who actually support Gavin Newsom or any of these policies. You know, I mean, we, we, we talk all the time about the vast majority of Americans. And the truth is, we have no idea. We don't know how many Americans because the vast majority of Americans who are awake and who don't subscribe to this don't have a voice most of the time. Well, they, don't, they don't vote. I mean, Laura, you know, can, so can I win in, in, in our country? It's who wins the elections, and so, right now the left is winning. What can you guys I real, in here a real quick? Or we're going to have Warner. We're going to have Warner, who's Brooke Jackson's attorney, the Pfizer whistleblower, um, jump in here real quick because he's got um, an update that's really important and significant for this conversation. Well, I, I want to address part of the conversation, and then I'll address what's going on with Brooke's case. Um, I mean, the first thing is we are doing a lot. Look at the sea change in Ohio politics, for example. Look at the people resisting the mandates. Our state legislature has been partly, you know, partly responsive to the objections of the people. I do not see Ohioans as not awake. They may not understand, but they're awake to what's going on. They are rejecting mandates right and left. We have a supermajority in the House and Senate in this state. 
You know, we have Ron DeSantis starting a criminal prosecution at the state level. State power is really important. Our federal system can come into play here, and we all know how to operate in our own individual state. So I think that's part of the answer. I think Dr. Malone has mentioned that in his book as well. Uh, and, and I'm certainly going to push that and help that as much as possible. Uh, cases like Brooke Jackson's, where you have a whistleblower, you know, who came, you know, who braved everything. And for people rep- who don't know, she's the Pfizer whistleblower who talked about the clinical trials and what was really going on. Thank you. Thank you, Laura, for clarifying that. I, you know, I, I look at her documents every single day and I look at these clinical trials and how horrific the process was how they were basically fraudulent trials, in my view. And we look at the numbers who, you know, look at the all-cause mortality just in the clinical trials. It showed that those who got the shots died at a higher rate of those who didn't get the shots. So the all-cause mortality is terrible. The adverse events of those who got the shots in the clinical trials, there were over uh, 5,000 adverse events for those uh, poor people who were subjected to this in the trials. So Cases like that are key. And, and in fact, Brooke Jackson has some power here as a whistleblower. We don't have federal uh, support on this. We don't have the federal government involved. They could have been involved. We saw an email this uh, last couple of weeks saying that the Office of Criminal Investigation, some people there at least, were willing to go after Pfizer criminally. So we do know, and I I appreciate Ron Johnson's point about our federal government, we have some good people in our federal government who want to do the right thing. And we need to support efforts like the whistleblowers who are out here and everything they're doing. And and frankly, Senator Johnson, I would like to see the federal government re-intervene in the case and assist us with discovery. And I know that's probably very unlikely at this point. We just had a uh, hearing with the judge uh, on discovery. We're trying to get discovery. It's delayed now another three months until March, and he has indicated to us that he will have a decision on that case uh, in March, whether to dismiss it or not. And um, just for everybody to know this, the official position of the federal government in that case is that it should be dismissed. They filed a, a motion, uh, you know, supporting, they filed a brief supporting Pfizer's motion to dismiss, which is very disappointing. They have a further power that they did not exercise, though. Uh, the federal government in this type of case, it's a False Claims Act, KETAM case, has the power to just dismiss it. And for whatever reason, that has not happened yet. So we feel like there is kind of a war going on within the federal government about this case and about many other things. And some, you know, good people in our government are, are lobbying for support. They're not succeeding in that. But I think as we see the death and destruction go, every week that goes by, we see more disabled, more dead, more injured. Um, everywhere I look, uh, you know, I think that, that there will be a sentiment that grows But I want to end this on the fact that we have power in our own individual lives and in our own individual states, and we need to exercise it in every way we can. If the federal government is failing, let's look to our federal system and and what we can do locally. That's right. All of us us have have a role in continuing to tell the truth. I'm going to go back to the Soviet example. What caused that regime to collapse? Yes, the political maneuverings of a Thatcher or a Reagan played a role in the 1980s and 1990s. 
But ultimately, that system began to collapse in 1978. Actually, it began to collapse even earlier when Alexander Solzhenitsyn published the Gulag Archipelago. There's a single copy of that manuscript had to be smuggled out of Soviet Russia. Um, it, it, it made it impossible after that for the Western elites, the useful idiots uh, at U.S. universities to continue supporting that regime and pretending like uh, like they didn't know what was actually going on. This is a this is a man who wrote this thing, you know, in his blood, metaphorically, he was suffering in the Soviet gulag and just uh, telling the truth about what happened. We have whistleblowers like Brooke Jackson who are not just telling the truth, but they're willing to suffer for the sake of telling the truth. They're telling the truth when it costs them something. And the witness of that is very powerful. So, I mean, fear is contagious, but courage is, is also contagious. Um, uh, the, the Soviets were terrified of uh, a Polish man named Karol Wojtyla, uh, also known as John Paul II, who made his first visit to Poland in 1978. Why were they terrified of this man? Napoleon remarked that the Pope has, you know, how many legions does he have? Uh, you know, he has no sort of temporal power, but this was a man who had lived under the Nazis and lived under the Soviets and just stood up in front of the Polish people and told the truth. Uh, that's why they were terrified of him. So, you know, the people, the people who are actually involved in spreading lies are terrified of the truth. If they weren't terrified of the truth, they wouldn't work so hard to suppress it. And that's yes. very powerful. Which so, is what you see what in the Twitter files. You're you're 100 telling the right. truth in and our you know own what? circle of influence. There's a very simple remedy here. And Senator Johnson, you know, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this. You can address the vaccines by taking away the protection, the immunity from prosecution and from liability that the, va- the pharmaceutical companies have that Reagan introduced since you, you know, you mentioned Reagan. Right. I mean, why do they why is that still in place? That's something that is tangible that can be addressed, but it's not ever going to change with York, you know, with Biden and Merrick Garland and Christopher Ray and uh, and Hamla, you know, Kamala Harris still in power. And people say, well, you don't have a majority in the Senate. You'll never be able to impeach. But uh, but you can still impeach them in the House. Can I and- can I can I jump in with one uh, request? There's one simple thing that could turn the tide here which is the declaration of public health emergency must be rescinded. It's clear that it is not valid. And as Bobby Kennedy said on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial almost a year ago now, they will not uh, relinquish that power until they are forced to do so. And the only hand that can force them to do so right now is Congress. That's the one pressure point that I would like to see change, and it would trigger a cascading collapse because all of the emergency use authorizations are predicated on that declaration. If that would cease, it would open the window for everything here. Over. And if we tried to do that, at least if Congress tried to do that, even if they failed, you can expose the leaders who won't support it. Because, we're, um, you know, one thing that is frustrating and is I'm tired of hearing it is, oh, they'll never answer that question. Sometimes it doesn't matter. The fact that they won't answer it, the fact that they won't support it, that they won't do it is the point, which was exactly the point on January 6th. What they didn't want is those hundred congressmen who, who were going to ask for the elections uh, you know, to go back to the states and to be examined. They didn't want 
that to come before Congress because they didn't want to be exposed. They didn't want anyone to know where they stood on that issue. And they wanted that never to be presented to the American people. And they wanted them never to see that there was support for it. So we, we, you know, what about a bill to strip the immunity of the pharmaceutical companies and get rid of the emergency use authorization? Because you're 100% correct. You know, that's what's obliterated HIPAA. And, and that is what is keeping all of this in place when there's obviously no medical or clinical justification for any of it. So, again, you, you have to start with the stepping stones. And the reason I have focused on the vaccine injured, first of all, just out of compassion, they, they just want to be seen, heard, believed so they can get treated. Yes. But once we have, you know, members of Congress acknowledging that these vaccine injuries are real, these people have been harmed then Congress will be, you know, hopefully willing to act. And that's would be the predicate. But the but for, the, but the but, declaration but, but, of public health emergency is independent. Yes, of the and I, and I, I know that. Doc, and you, you know what? You know, we add I offered an amendment. You know, it was it was five of us. We weren't. I am in no way criticizing you. No, I understand. You're an absolute hero. I know. It's it's what I'm saying. It's not going to happen right now. It's not going to happen. OK, you don't have the votes. Democrats going to line up against Biden. They're not going to support that. So that's not going to happen. Here's here's something that might happen once people recognize what has happened here in terms of the truth. That's why it's step by step. They recognize the harm done by these vaccines, the vaccine injured. That gives you the chance to remove the liability. But I think even more important, we have to stop them from being to from advertising. That is what has given the pharmaceutical companies so much power. I mean, these ads are incredibly stupid. The only reason they run them is to so they can tr- control the media companies and so they control the narrative. So With, I think you got to break by spreading that around the money once again. Yeah, I mean, you got to break but, that bond. But it is it is expressly illegal to advertise and market an unlicensed medical product, and yet there are no repercussions for doing so. And That's furthermore, right. the advertiser is not just Pfizer. It's the U.S. government. That's right. I know it's sick. And on top of that, it is also illegal and a clear violation of uh, the First Amendment to have the FBI directing social media and the CIA to target American citizens and violate their First Amendment rights. And so what are we doing about that? Because, What's Congress here, going to do about it? So here's here's why that's happening and why it's going to continue is because right now, you know, the, the partisanship in the deep state favors one side. The, again, the left has infiltrated every institution, our education systems, our media, um, law, to, to, you know, to our courts, and they have control of it. They've got control of all these agencies. And so you don't have an independent media holding people accountable. Listen, I don't think the scandals would be occurring in the FBI if you literally had a, an unbiased media. But we have a highly biased media, and all this all this deep state, all this control favors the left. And so, you, again, you just don't have the political will to fix what needs to be fixed. Senator, Senator, is it is can the House defund the COVID propaganda? Is that something that's doable? I'm not sure I understand what you're saying. I, well, I'm saying like there's, 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 this was you, this methodology was used a few times when the, when the Republicans had the house last time to, you know, basically extract information from the department of justice and the FBI basically fencing certain money um, and, you know, basically 
preventing some of their funding from going through. I'm wondering if that same technique could be used to, for example, you know, stop the COVID propaganda from being from from being funded because it's funded to the tune of huge yeah, amounts in, of money, in, right? In a, in a functioning appropriation process, possibly. But here we are, three months into a fiscal year, we never brought up one appropriation account. We're doing a 4,100-page omnibus to fund the whole pig. So again, there, there's just not that that fine tuning right. of of uh, funding things. This is, well, again, it's got to be done on a on a more massive scale. Maybe without the Senate, uh, this isn't possible, but I've advanced a proposal and it wouldn't even necessarily require ending the state of emergency now, which I believe has to happen. But at least putting a, a constitutional system of checks and balances on the declaration of the state of emergency, because right, right now we have the executive empowered, actually his delegate, the secretary of HHS, is empowered to declare a public health emergency. Under a public health emergency, the president gains 128 additional extra constitutional powers that he wouldn't otherwise have. As Robert said, he's going to he and his administration are going to be you know, reluctant to relinquish those powers, obviously. And uh, those powers are most often de de uh, delegated to unelected public health bureaucrats and others within the administration. What about Congress just saying? OK, there's there's got to be some threshold that is set legislatively for what can you guys you, you don't understand. You don't understand the profound dysfunction of Congress It's completely yeah. broken. So the, the check right now has got to come from the courts. And, and yeah. we are, you know, we are seeing progress in the courts. Listen, I'm a business guy. I've, lawyers are not my my favorite uh, profession. OK, I've, I've learned to appreciate them as a constitutional balance. So, I mean, that's that's why we got the Fauci. Fauci. Email. You know, we got we got them redacted, but we're not subject to redactions. So we could pressure on HHS that was bipartisan. My chairman supported me on this, and we were able to look under those redactions. So I, I think the court system is our best possibility in terms I of concur. state of emergency, getting more and more information. You know, again, I, I subpoenaed the FBI. I have no enforcement powers. The courts do have enforcement powers, which is why FOIA works better, and we get outside groups to FOIA. And there's a possibility we could FOIA too, but Congress is not subject to the redactions that the public is under FOIA. So you get somebody else to FOIA documents, then we get those same documents, and then we put pressure on the agencies to unredact them. But it takes time. It's piecemeal. This, this is why in the book I speak about the importance of West Virginia versus EPA. Uh, the Supremes are on the threshold on a lot of different case law. And I'm not a lawyer. But I strongly concur that uh, our only uh, path forward at this point is uh, through the courts and in particular through the Supremes. I think that that they are now willing to support, in part because of Mr. Trump's appointments, um, the revision of the uh, um, established law which is what enables the administrative state under the thesis that Congress has inappropriately delegated um, lawmaking to uh, this permanent SES administrative state structure, which is acting um, in, in, uh, under the executive branch to make law. And that is where it's got to stop. And as far as I'm concerned, it's a consequence, not in any way uh, fingering you, Ron, but it's a consequence of a chronic 
failure of uh, both the House and the Senate to exercise their authority and willingness to delegate it to this permanent unelected body that we're referring to, the Leviathan. So, uh, so that, uh, Senator Johnson, Johnson, I'd like to weigh in on that. I, I think that uh, Dr. Malone is exactly right. We have an administrative state that has gone berserk. If you go back and you look at what the authorizing initial legislation is, it is that you can see that's that's the boundary of administrative power. And anytime they step outside that boundary, there is a possibility of a court case. I mean, one of those cases that took place this year was on the definition of vaccine, uh, the the Griner case um, and not Brittany Griner, the other Griner case so the covid Griner case. In that case, I mean, they attempted and they lost at this, but they're going to appeal it, I believe. Uh, they lost in the fact that there is a definition of vaccine in legislation, and, w- and we are acting outside of that by calling this product a vaccine. So that goes that's to one correct. of the core. That's one of those core issues, and it's one of the things people really ought to look look at. That's what we are doing in in much of our litigation. Uh, is just trying to hold the administrative state within the bounds of the legislatures at state levels and at federal levels. The states also have an administrative state that has gone outside the bounds. And and we are challenging that directly in a small case that's before the Ohio Supreme Court in January. So we're simply saying liquor control in Ohio cannot enforce health care mandates, which they were doing. And it's a very simple little case, but it deals directly with that uh, that berserk behavior by our administrative bodies. Thanks. Well, I, I will quick chime in. You know, Congresses have been delegating their constitutional authority to the executive branch, mainly to evade accountability. They, they don't write prescriptive laws. It's kind of general frame, frameworks and allow the executive branch to fill it in. The Supreme Court is starting to rein that back. I mean, the the real precedent decision was the Chevron decision. Now that's being uh, slowly uh, eroded by additional court cases where Supreme Court is taking a look and saying, now the legislator never gave you that authority, but understand how poorly written so many of these laws are. I mean, you've got to, lawyers just have to kind of look for the loopholes and things, you know, take a look at what they can enforce through the courts and what they can't. Uh, Eventually it's going to have to come back to Congress to fix some of these things, but that's going to create the that's going to require the public pressure. That's why I keep going back to the step-by-step, providing the public with the information, the truth, get them to the point of outrage and what's happened to them, happened to us, to demand action on a legislative basis, because that's what it's going to take. Well, what about attaching riders to some of these uh, bills, like the spending bill and the appropriations bill and so on? You know, riders that strip indemnification um, from and, and uh, inoculate the pharmaceutical companies, right, well, if you from can, liability. If you, get, if you can get the two people that are writing the bills to attach those riders, that's great. But, I mean, that's what's just happened here. I mean, you had, you, you got four people of power in Washington, see the president, the minority and majority leader of the Senate, and the speaker. That's it. Those are only four people that have power. They may delegate to the staff of the chairman of the appropriation committee the ability to negotiate this, but there was no member of Congress other than those people that saw this 4,155-page bill until today. And we voted to you know, proceed to it, and it's a done deal. We'll get some amendment votes. They'll all fail. It's all been pre-planned. It's all been pre-cooked. This is not a deliberative process. I mean, you know, set aside whatever you learned in seventh grade physics. It's not the way 
This place is so broken, so dysfunctional. Uh, again, all the power resides in those four so people why, watching so the why bother? the courts. Then why should the American people bother? Why should they support well, the that's Well, that's unfortunately people are dropping out, which just plays in the hands of the huge state. I mean, because what what you're well, it it doesn't just play into the hands of the deep state. I mean, it, you know, you can't avoid that. But it also, um, it it's it has it's a double edged sword. So while it plays into their state, I mean, the definition of insanity is to keep doing the same thing and expecting a different result. So if you keep electing your leaders and expecting them to do something and they're not able to because the system is so broken, it doesn't really matter what the reason is. The effect is the same. Nothing. No one is held accountable. The law is obliterated and uh, and people, you know, just get more and more frustrated or they continue about their daily business. So where is the where are the leaders thinking outside the box? What are the things that we can do outside well, you got, the you box? Got, you know what, Larry, you got, you got one of them on this call. One of them that was so frustrated, I was just going to walk away from this. And the only reason I didn't is because nobody else was advocating for the vaccine injured. That's the only reason I ran for re-election. I was just I was just going to say that, uh, Senator Johnson, Uh, you know, I think you I know it was a close election, but I think you won because of your principled stance and the recognition of it. And, you know, so, you know, we cannot sit back and just let stuff happen. We have to participate. You know, I can't thank uh, Senator Johnson enough for inviting myself and uh, Brooke Jackson to his uh, offices uh, a couple of weeks ago. I mean, it's just critical. I mean, an individual senator has incredible power to get information out there. It's just you have made you have provided an example for any other congressman or senator who wants to stand up and do something. I, so I can't thank you enough. And, uh, you know, I don't want people to feel like they can't do anything. They have to get out there and we have to fight. I mean, it is about eternal vigilance and we're all starting to learn it. And the the only good thing coming out of this crisis is we understand the depth of the crisis that we're in, and we better get busy, or we're going to lose it all. Out. Well, I, I will tell you what the um, head of the Free Burma Rangers, an extraordinary man, uh, told me once um, when he was targeted by the U.S. government many years ago for the missionary work he was doing in Burma, and he was as a former Green Beret. The sense of betrayal was profound for him. And uh, one of the French doctors looked at him um, when he was uh, devastated by the reality of what his government was doing to him, which is pretty much, you know, where we reached, you know, that point 20 years, 30 years later. And his this French doctor said to him, David, it's good that you're disillusioned, right? Because it means that everything you believed in was an illusion. And that's that's the point where we're at. We'd rather have the truth. I, I have yet to encounter... Um, you know, a, a, the ordinary person out there who doesn't just want the truth. If you're dying of cancer, you may not like the truth. You may not want to deal with it, but you don't want the doctor to lie to you, right? You don't. And even though people have, there is this innate human condition and they're very good in information warfare at exploiting, you know, naturally existing conditions like the human condition to, I don't want to accept that I may be responsible, you know, or I may have a ticking time bomb or I may have been deceived. At the same time, they're not being given an opportunity to make that decision because they're not getting the whole truth. So it's yeah, Dr. Thorpe on there. Wants Dr. Thorpe? Yes. Thank you, uh, Senator Johnson. And thank you, Larry. And uh, had a question, a comment and a question. Uh, First, to Dr. Aaron's point, uh, courage is courageous. 
it, there, there's no doubt about it. Uh, my whistleblower from California, Michelle Gershman, came out uh, from the central California community uh, exploiting, uh, demonstrating, proving beyond a shadow of a doubt the massive increase in fetal death rates, stillbirth. Um, she came out, put herself at risk, uh, tremendous risk. But as she's come out now, subsequently, there's been two other whistleblowers other than myself from Florida, the only three OBGYN doctors in the country that are practicing, that are attacking what's going on to our patients, women of reproductive age, pregnant women, preborns, and newborn babies. Uh, this is the most egregious disaster in the history of humanity. This has never been done before. So courage is courageous. And what you're doing today is part of, as Dr. Malone pointed out, uh, an antidote to information warfare, fifth generation warfare. And the more we do it, I'm getting more and more calls from my Trojan horses all over the world, uh, giving me the horrible adverse outcomes in, in pregnancy. And uh, Dr. Malone, um, Robert, you had mentioned uh, about a half an hour ago about the NIAID um, giving out bribe monies. Now, I want to clarify this. Is this different than the $13 billion that the Department of Health and Human Services directed to 274 different agencies, including all the medical boards, to bribe them last year through the COVID-19 Coalition Corps? Is that the same monies you're talking about, or is that a separate uh, stockpile of bribe monies? So I'm, I'm, uh, I would be cautious. I, I counsel caution in using words like bribes. Um, we are in a legal landscape. Uh, um, there's no question that over $10 billion were invested by our government uh, through both uh, Homeland and Health and Human Services to advance a false narrative. Um, uh, uh, Dr. Fauci um, controls uh, two, or uh, until recently, controlled two major um, uh, initiatives that crossed uh, different cabinet level um, uh, organizations, that being um, uh, Department of Defense as well as HHS, uh, NIH, and particularly NIAID. Um, within his portfolio in both, he has significant control over the allocation of funds. And he has long operated using essentially a business model akin to that uh, which is often practiced on Wall Street by the biotechnology industry. We use the term pump and dump. But in the case of Dr. Fauci, um, his uh, target, uh, un you know, as opposed to being individual investors, for instance, is the legislature. Uh, and his vehicle for controlling uh, consensus and information is through controlling awards. If you, if you, um, uh, in, in under his uh, management, choosing my words, uh, if you uh, acted um in opposition to his 
interests, you would lose funding. You would no longer be able to sustain an academic career. So uh, when we talk about Fauci and, um, and control, uh, we need to understand he has become a master at managing the nuance of uh, federal budgeting and the, and the, uh, the loop uh, that exists between NIH and Congress in which functionally the NIH um, is relatively autonomous even from the executive branch. It's important to remember that Tony uh, was not SES. Tony fell into a special category that was functionally consultants. Yet what he did was he actively uh, cultivated relationships with the legislature, with important legislators, and uh, did so through a, a loop of uh, receiving uh, allocations and then um, feeding those allocations back by congressional district. You can see this very clearly in the Biodefense Centers of Excellence strategy that was deployed. So um, when you speak of Tony and his empire, uh, it's separate. Yes, it is separate from the uh, north of $10 billion that were invested in, uh, you know, uh, New York dancing productions and the buy off of, of virtually every influencer that the government could identify. Um it, that is the tendrils that controls academe uh, and also controls uh, much of the biodefense industrial complex domestically and then vertically up through the World Health Organization. I mean, again, what I'm struck in these conversations is the, the community here participating keeps looping back as if this is a domestic U.S. problem. It is a domestic problem. But it is global. The, the actions that have been deployed, the strategies, the language, the tactics have been global and globally harmonized. It is not just the United States. And that's the key um, data point to recognize that what we're dealing with here is far, far deeper and broader than just um, uh what we're speaking of in terms of the American legislature and many of these yes. actors have deep structural ties. Uh, I'm sorry to say it with the CCP. Yes, that's absolutely correct. And not, not only that, but they have put in place the institutions, the global institutions um, that they need, it, that it's the global bureaucracy. So, so what we're already doing is living under globalist policies, you know, and we, um, we're doing that with the border. For example, you know, people talk about the open border. Someone mentioned Mayorkas, but what they don't talk about is the fact that in 2018 at the United Nations, they introduced the Global Compact on Migration, which made it a human right. Precisely. Agenda 2030. That's it. So the reason the Biden administration never talks about a crisis at the border, the reason they say they don't say that there's a, a they won't allow anyone in their agencies. They got rid of the word illegal. And, you know, their stooges in the media, you know, followed suit by erasing that word from the lexicon, even though they are illegal immigrants, you know, as a, you know, as a point of fact, not just under. It's because also under of the, the thesis that it is a fundamental human right 
to migrate, to migrate. wherever you want to go in the world. Correct, because borders are constructs that should not interfere, they believe, and they say it, with the, you know, the execution of your human right. And human rights to them supersede what? The God-given constitutional rights that people in the United States of America enjoy. And, and so what you are doing is you're living under a globalist policy already. The Biden administration talks about regular and irregular waves of legal migration. And they've already warned us, you know, Bill Gates and, and many others about the climate refugees, the 1.2 billion climate refugees that we can expect to be on the move. What they don't tell you about is the meetings behind closed doors, you know, um, at the UN level where uh, they are talking about depopulation. I know someone who was in those meetings. It took two security clearances, separate ones, to go in there. It took years of training underground to be able to infiltrate what he calls the global cult at the UN level, where they talk about phasing in regional government as the beginning of a global government. But what they don't tell you about is that they have already put the structures of that global government and those global policies in place. And we know that because look at what Biden just signed up for at the G20. I mean, and, and I look see. at what they have said that the, the World Health Organization, a global body of unelected bureaucrats can run the next you know, pandemic. So we've never in our living history, you know, uh, we've not experienced the pandemic before, but we already have a global infrastructure in place to, to deal with the next one, which we're told is imminent. It's just around the corner, right? And if not that, then climate. And you, what you see when you start to connect these dots is the patterns of information warfare, because just like the science with COVID, we're not allowed to question the science of so-called, you know, uh, climate change. The climate changes every three seconds in the day, right? It's always changing. You can't prove something wrong that is absolutely true. But what you can prove wrong is every single model that the UN has ever come up with for what we were going to be living at in 2000 and 2020 and so on and so on. There's not a single thing they have ever put forward about climate change that has been accurate or that has been that has held up scientifically. It's all been wrong. And yet we're told again, you can't question that science. You can't question this science. But there are practical things that we can do, like stripping the social media companies of Section 230 protection because they yes. have violated the terms. And it's the same thing with the pharmaceutical companies. They were given Reagan-granted immunity from liability and prosecution to the pharmaceutical companies. And back in the 80s and vaccines went through the roof. Well, they have now, this is not a vaccine. It's not even legally, doesn't meet the legal definition of a vaccine. We know that. And Warner is right about that. And so they have violated that the terms of that agreement by pushing a, a medical um, bioweapon on most, uh, on the entire globe, that the costs of which are still being counted. And we can't get up and do something about that. We can only keep doing the same thing over and over again and hope for a different result. No, 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 Laura, we, we can do something about it. So everything, everything that's been described is true about the breadth and the depth of this global regime, about the level of institutional capture and compromise and corruption. And now that all of our listeners are ready to I don't know, slash their veins in, in despair. Or uh, rise a, up. Or rise it's up. It's important and be to have a historical <laughs> perspective because you only rise up if you believe in the possibility 
of victory. So yes, we need to rise yes. up and we need to if you have changes. Hope. So the possibility of victory um, is clear if you take a historical perspective, because there's many examples in history of you know a third act reversal when all hope seemed lost, and suddenly <laughs> something unexpected happens. We were at the edge of a tipping point, and we didn't even realize it. And the next courageous act or the next uh, legal tweak of the system was enough to uh, you know, collapse one element of the regime. And then that started a chain reaction and the rest of the regime collapsed. So as I said before, regimes built on lies always eventually collapse under the weight of their own contradictions. What can we do to speed up that process so that it happens faster rather than, rather than slower? Nobody, no, none of the observers in 1987, 1988, believed that the Berlin Wall and the entire Soviet system would collapse in 1989. Certainly nobody believed it would collapse basically without a shot fired, that it would collapse without the Cold War turning into a hot war, that it would collapse, again, under the weight of its own contradictions. Um, In retrospect, we can go back and reconstruct, yeah, there was a solidarity movement in Poland, and yeah, there was this, and yeah, there are the economic issues, and so on and so forth. But the fact is, at the time, nobody could see it coming, but it happened. Right. It so, happened. Aaron, Aaron, to that point, uh, I think the question on the table right now is, for whatever reason, Mr. Musk has decided to tear off the veil off of one of the uh, social media companies that has been most instrumental in enabling this swarm consensus and uh, the the question I think we all face right now, and here we are in on operating on Twitter uh, unexpectedly, you know, uh, again, a month and a half ago, I, there's no way I could have imagined we had this conversation today. Uh, we, we do seem to have a, an ally for whatever reason that uh, is willing to share that documentation and, I think that we have an opportunity through alternative media, which is increasingly powerful, which is taking down CNN. I mean, it's, it's profound. My little Substack, put out by my wife and I daily reaches a half a million to a million people equivalent to the prime time market share viewership of CNN. We are taking down corporate media. We're doing it through alternative media and through these types of interactions such as we're having right now. And for whatever reason, Mr. Musk has given us the ammunition that we need. It's up to us right now to load and fire, as far as I'm concerned. So this is a... It appears there's more in the Twitter files. And I would ask you, Senator Johnson, in your in your response here, can you also address whether or not you see anything that could be uh, prosecuted uh, that's come out already? Yeah, I think, you know, the constitutional violations of uh, members of the FBI, I think is, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but uh, I think that's certainly wrong. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to see some prosecutions there. Uh, I, I'm, I'm going to leave the call here, but, you know, my, my parting thought is is pretty much to confirm uh, the hope on this. And, and what COVID has done is as horrific as it has been, as it has led to such a loss of freedom. It's opened people's eyes. It 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 it, it might be that event that uh, 
you know, Dr. Aaron's talking about in terms of uh, being the catalyst for bringing this fifth generation warfare to a close or, or, you know, helping to defeat it. So, you know, I, I think it was Dr. Malone in one of his substacks said that the truth has its own power. And so this, this whole effort here is to convey truth relentlessly, fearlessly. As Dr. Thorpe said, I think, I think courage is contagious. Uh, we see one whistleblower come forward, and then you see additional whistleblowers come forward. So, I think uh, it was you know, Julian Assange who said doc, that. Dr. Malone has a following of a million people because of COVID. Um, so COVID has, has exposed things, it has given us an opportunity to push back on the larger problem. And I guess my only point has been, I think you've got to focus, I think you have to focus on the issue at hand. You have to focus on the catalyst, which is COVID, which is the violation of our rights because of the vaccine, because the vaccine injuries, because that will awaken more people and actually allow this to blossom into something that can uh, defeat these people. Because again, this, this is, there's a much, bigger story there, there's something much larger occurring here than just covid but anyway i, I appreciate being part of this i appreciate what uh, elon musk has done here opening up twitter i've never never participated in something like this it's uh, uh interesting <laughs> and hope to participate in the future as well so well we appreciate have a, your, we have, appreciate have a good being evening yeah and and also being so generous with your time i know it's late there and uh and you've been on the call for a long time and I think, um, you know, I speak to people every day. I think they would want you to know, Senator, that there are more people behind you, perhaps, uh, than you realize. And, uh, you know, it's the weight of history is on your side, not theirs. Well, I just wish uh, everybody's Godspeed and, and Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays. Take care. Merry Thank Christmas. you, Senator Johnson. Thank you. So since, you. since Senator Johnson said Merry Christmas, let me throw something out here uh, to the group, is that, you know, we're, we're talking about this. Um, as if it has, you know, since we're talking about the broader war, it is important to also uh, address, you know, that there is a spiritual component um, to what is happening right now. And it's a, you know, it's a subject that sometimes people really don't want to take on at all. But I know that there will be people, listeners among here, who will be screaming, you know, at their, uh, at their Twitter page, asking why we're not addressing this, because one of the major significant events that happened because of COVID. And I, I had this conversation with, uh, with Muslim people and I had it with Jewish people and I had it with Christian people is this was an opportunity. It was, and it really exposed the war on faith and the, the fact that people were not able to go to the mosque to pray. I have a friend from Afghanistan who said to me, I've, you and I have known each other more than 20 years. We met in the war. Most of our time together has been in war. And yet, in all of that time, I was never prevented from going to the mosque to pray. And, uh, you know, that was a sentiment that was echoed to me by people of, of every faith. So uh, who wants to address the spiritual uh, dimension to what we're dealing with here and what COVID, how it exposed that there is very much a war against people. It, it manifests primarily as war against Christians right now, but it is a war against all faith. L let me step in as a generally non-religious person. I, uh, I, it was really shocking to me how I felt as this developed. And 
you know, what I, I, I never have seen such a manifestation of what I would term evil, which gives this a very spiritual uh, perspective. So it's really somebody who does not go to church, is not, you know, religious. Uh, I am praying right now. I pray to God for everybody in this country and everybody in this world and that, that we uh, can save ourselves because it's up to us. Can I add another note to that? In traveling all over the world, uh, both myself and my physician colleagues, one of the things that we've found consistent is the communities of faith have been the most resistant to the propaganda. Yeah. I can't tell to the extent that it is that they have remained communities and haven't been fragmented by all the efforts to, to split us against ourselves. Um, or it's their uh, faith-based uh, orientation, but absolutely, globally, across all religions, it's been the communities of faith that have been able to resist this information warfare that we've all been subjected to. I think that's really important. Over. It's, it's very significant and interesting that you say that, because if you go back to the founding of this country, um, uh, you know, way back to 1776, what you uh, what you learn is that the Illumin, the leaders of the Illuminati, who were somewhat surprised that this revolution on the other side of the world actually happened, what they studied in order to understand it was the letters from the colonies, which uh, very much highlighted the fact that faith had kept those colonies alive and kept them together and kept them united, that it was their faith that had been the beacon of, of light that led them all to this place. And so uh, what, they, what the Illuminati did at that time was to then try to infiltrate the churches and the faithful. But because that proved to be uh, difficult, they then shifted their focus to the seminaries. And what you will see today is evidence of that because the churches themselves are not standing up for faith and not standing up for Christians, and not standing up for God. And uh, a revolutionary theology, theology became prolific in the early 1970s, starting with the Catholics and, and spreading throughout, you know, uh, through the Lutheran Church. And uh, and I have I've been with a priest who's actually a liturgic specialist, spoke 11 languages, and was uh, documenting and, and illustrated to me how they've changed the words and then the meanings of the prayers. And, uh, and I've spoken to priests who talked about witnessing pagan ceremonies inside the seminaries, pagan rituals and ceremonies inside the religious schools that are training the next generation of priests. I mean, you can't make it up. I spoke to one uh, priest who said that he had been secular for this first 13 years as a pastor before he was saved. The depth to which... This has, you know, we talked about this being fifth generation warfare and being fought on many different fronts. And it is interesting that you observed that about communities of faith because that has always been the case. It has always been the case that when people have sought to influence others, that communities of faith have been the most resistant to propaganda. History shows us that. I want to add, Lara, I think Jim wants to say something here. Yeah, Lara, thank you for your comments. And um, I, I would just like to expand on your request for sharing some spiritual comments. And, and I, coming from, uh, I'm a Judeo-Christian, I'm a follower of Christ. 
I, I relate very well with my Muslim brothers and sisters, my Jewish brothers and sisters. And you're, you're, you're absolutely right. What this horrible disaster that was brought upon humanity uh, almost three years ago, it has destroyed the, it has divided us. I've lost, because I have chosen to interpret the data the way that I've always interpreted data my entire career, uh, especially that in uh, reproductive medicine as an OBGYN, maternal fetal medicine specialist, um, it has divided us. And because I choose to interpret the data, I, I have lost so many family and so many friends and so many colleagues who will not even engage in a discussion with me. But the good side of that is that in these uh, meetings for the last two years that I've been engaged in and around the world, people of faith, people of nationality, completely different faith, completely different language, nationality, cultures, we've all come together regardless of the color of our skin and our faith like brothers and sisters, taking on the vacuum of those that I've lost of my closest friends. So it is the people of faith of all traditions that have seen the, the truth and are brought together by the truth. Also part of the fifth generation, fifth uh, generation of warfare. So what, what I've seen is, is horrible disasters in terms of spiritual carnage. Uh, I alluded with Dr. Uh, Malone and, and Senator Johnson about the $13 billion, and, and uh, Robert, I hear you, I'll, I'll, uh, I will be a little bit more, uh, 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 less calling it what, what it really is and calling it loans or whatever you want to call it, but it is what it is. It was $13 billion. It was given to 274 sectors. I used to have very little respect for attorneys as, as, a, as Senator Johnson um, said. I, I ended up marrying one and I love her very much, but I didn't have much regard for attorneys. Um, now I have no regard, I have no respect for physicians or pastors because the vast majority of pastors, the vast majority of churches, they are, they are totally lost. They are not following our, our tradition of, 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 of faith. And they have been bought off by whatever you want to call them, Dr. Malone. And they are pushing these vaccines uh, to their congregation. The people that I used to respect the most in my life were priests and pastors and, you know, uh, and, and rabbis and imams, people of faith. Um, it, I won't speak for, for anybody except the Christian pastors now, I have no respect for them. Ninety-nine uh, percent of them are, are are pushing the vaccine, and they they have they've lost their semblance of truth, and they pushed it on their congregations. And it was all done globally in a harmonized, coordinated fashion. That's right. It was pre-planned. Yeah. It, and and Let the speed with which it happened. So here's a couple of of tools for people. You know, if you're listening to this and you think, well, how do you know whether something is natural or manipulated? The speed with which it happened is an absolute dead giveaway. The uh, Whenever you have a majority like that, it just doesn't happen in the natural world that you can get, you know, almost you get every country to agree to uh, extreme 
extreme measures. That doesn't happen overnight. If it was the first time people were hearing about it, they would have been arguing it. They would have been, they would, it wouldn't have happened that way. Also, viruses, you know, they don't replicate in cold countries and hot countries the same way. So how come we had this virus spreading in cold and hot climates at exactly the same time? That tells you it didn't happen naturally. And, 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 you know, when you see, for example, 3 million people on the streets of Brazil, there's no way that even the CIA can pay enough people to make that happen. That is a natural organic protest. When you see the Summer of Love and you see these groups like, you know, Antifa on the streets and you look at the police reports and you see all the, uh, the drugs that are, are being picked up, you know, and, and everything else, you realize, okay, this is manipulated and this is fueled. And, and these are the tools that help us understand the truth. But, you know, I, somebody wanted to jump in there and I cut them off. So please uh, weigh in. Laura, I wanted to just chime in real quick because I'm, I have to sign off here. Um, on yeah, the question so we should of, bring this to a close. Yeah, on the, on the question of uh, both what, what the churches did globally. I'm Roman Catholic. I was in Rome earlier this year speaking to a, a group of Catholic politicians from around the world, uh, north and global south. And there were several high-ranking Catholic prelates there. And I agree with the previous remark that many, many of our clergy religious leaders uh, did abandon their posts. And in fact, I said very clearly in that closed door setting um, that many of our chaplain, many of our uh, bishops became willing chaplains to the new technocracy. It's not something I'm happy about admitting uh, as, as a Catholic. Uh, there, was, there were very high-ranking uh, you know, not not the Pope, but the next next echelon down of um, influential cardinals at the global level who were there. And it, it didn't didn't much like hearing that, as you might imagine. At the same time, many in the resistance, uh, myself included, are, are rooted in um, a spiritual tradition that convinces us of the primacy of truth. I mean, you can ask the question, why should truth prevail over lies? Why should we even care about the truth? And if you drill down deeply enough, that's a, that's a metaphysical question. Um, and the, the world's religions have some very profound answers to that question. You know, why not just advance my own personal aim through lies and manipulation? So uh, I think it's important for us to call our religious leaders to greater responsibility and greater awareness. Um, at the same time, we need to reach for the spiritual resources uh, at hand um, and in our own traditions and in our own um, in our own prayer, in our own friendship with those who share our convictions, because uh, standing up against a regime like this is not easy. And our courage has to be grounded in something. It has to it has to find roots so that when when the winds come and when the opposition you know blows um, storms in our direction, we can stand firm and, and stay rooted. So your question, I think, is very important for all of us to consider, all of us to ponder and really think about. Um, and my last, my last remark, just before I sign off, kind of going back to my theme that history is full of surprises, uh, I wrote in, in my book, The New Abnormal, that nature and human nature always bats in the bottom of the ninth inning. And you can cheat these things for only so long before nature and human nature begin to push back. And so I, I do have hope that the regime of lies 
will collapse. I do firmly believe that all of us, whether we have a microphone, whether we're in a position of political power or not, all of us have a role to play in this drama. And we can begin by simple acts. For example, stop self-censoring, right? Start, you know, stepping out in that small group setting, in that family setting over the holidays. If you have an idea that seems to seems to contradict what the flow of the group is is saying, um, you have every right to express it. And maybe there's one or two other people there that are staying silent and not speaking up on an issue. But when they see you do it, it sort of empowers them. And then suddenly, uh, you know, the people that thought I'm the only one who thinks this way, am I crazy because everyone else seems to be running in the opposite direction? Suddenly people uh, are recognizing, first of all, that these you know, issues related to COVID policy or whatever are very much open to dispute at the very least. And there's other people here that share my concerns and my convictions and maybe aren't drinking the Kool-Aid or maybe are coming out of that, that sleepwalking trance that we've been in for the last few years. So check yourself when you notice self-censorship. Start speaking the truth. Find some way to be grounded in the conviction that the truth still matters in spite of everything. And it's a very powerful act to be willing to speak the truth in whatever small or large circle of influence you happen to find yourself. Thank you all for being here. I'm sorry I got to run. Let's do another one of these spaces sometime because this <laughs> hey, is Hey, Lara, I'm going yes. to jump in. It's John Nasta. How are you? Oh, uh, I'm good. Thank you. So th- thank you to everybody for being here. And John, I'm going to let you close out, okay? Thank you. Thank you. Um, a pleasure listening to this wonderful discussion. I'm traveling back from Vietnam and I'm in Tokyo today. So one of the groups, when we look at disappointment around certain religious communities, there's another group that is emerging that I think has a very powerful and rational voice, and that's the homeschooling community. While they're not faith-based, this has been a, a powerful and growing group. And not only does it does it impact kids, but it impacts parents making hard decisions. So I just want to throw those, uh, those two points in real quickly. Well, and, you know, we, we've had a lot of good points um, in, in uh, rooting this in history as well and in the bigger picture, which is, is I don't think, I, I agree with, with Bobby and everybody else. It's You can't even begin to understand this if you don't see it in, a, in the broader perspective and how that fits into a bigger strategy. And, um, and you know, uh, you just, what we, what we just heard about truth, that comes right back to the Twitter files and comes right back to what the FBI and the CIA, the intelligence community, have been doing um, right in front of us. And uh, and it comes back, you know, if, if the system is so broken that our leaders can't do anything about it, the message uh, that, that I keep hearing is that it's, it's on us. It's on each and every one of us. And if you are afraid to speak out, <laughs> the thing um, that we see in front of us is that your window to speak out isn't necessarily going to be there forever. If these people prevail... What they are uh, intent on doing, what they have been doing, is making sure that that, taking that right away, it's not going to stop here. It's like I always make the joke that, you know, you get older and you think, okay, okay, I can come to terms with 40. And then you hit 50 and you're like, oh boy, it didn't stop, right? You know, you put on... you put on six pounds, you think, okay, I don't mind being a little fatter. And then six more pounds later, you realize, uh oh, I got to do something. And that's kind of where we are as a nation and as, uh, you know, humanity. It's kind of where we are in the world is that if we don't do something about this, our ability, our options may not seem really good right now, <laughs> but failure to act every single day that we fail to act, our options 
are worse and worse. They, they're narrow, you know? And, and so uh, I prefer to act now before, you know, it's all lost. Um, but that's, that's my DNA. And I'm just very grateful to every, to the whistleblowers out there, to the doctors out there who stood up, not just now, but when it counted in the beginning. I mean, when, I mean, when it was even harder, it still counts. It counts now. It's, um, it's never too late. And what I saw happen with Defeat the Mandates, I want to say thank you to Defeat the Mandates for hosting this conversation. What I saw when I was speaking um, at an event for them in Los Angeles is, and what you see when you look at their videos, I would urge anyone to look at their videos, uh, you see that this actually, while it, has while it has divided people, it's also exposed much of the lies because people understand people of all faiths and people of all classes, all nationalities, all races, they have seen uh, what has been done in the name of science. They see the lie and they know uh, they're not, they're not going to go quietly into the dark night. They are standing up. People all across the world are standing up and we're just being denied access to that information. It's not right in front of us, but if you look for it, you can find it. Amen. Okay. So with that, Laura, do we close out? Yes. If anyone, does anyone have a last word, anything they want to say? Uh, thank you very much, uh, Laura and everybody that has participated. Yeah, well, my, my last word is uh, the quote from St. Augustine, of course, that the truth is like a lion. You don't have to defend it. Let it loose. It will defend itself, right? That's right. Exactly. Laura, I, uh, just I a have quick a, comment. I yes, have a okay. quick, quick, quick comment. This happened to me just recently. A lot of people that are likely vaccine injured don't recognize it as such and the doctors they're going to don't recognize it as such and it's very hard for them to diagnose <clears throat> so one of the things that we can do is just sort of if, if if we see things you can you can look on for example the flccc site and so forth there's places where you can sort of have a general idea if this is something people might want to look at i think that might help um, sort of increase awareness about the issue because, as as we know, this is sort of for a lot of people, it's just kind of unimaginable. They're still in this this trance, right? Yes, Nora. Yes. So I, I would like to leave a parting word as well. Uh, what God spoke of through the prophet Hosea, chapter four, verse five, He announced that my people die for lack of knowledge. And no other time up to this point in the history of humanity has that prophecy ever been more completely fulfilled than now. I have one last thing to say. Uh, this is Warner Mendenhall. I just want to thank all of the people who have suffered from this crisis. We have just dealt with thousands of people who've lost their jobs you know, lost their education careers, uh, lost their medical careers. And every last one of them who stood up and did what was right is really important to us. Uh, so I just want to thank all of you and all of you listening. You know who you are. It's, it's all about the truth. It's all about the identity you have with your family and your faith. And it's all about love for one another. So thank you very much, Laura. I, w I would echo that. I think we owe a debt of gratitude to every doctor, every healthcare worker, every scientist, Dr. Malone, you know, Dr. Aaron. I mean, all of you who have stood up. Um, it's uh, we're not there yet, but there's only one truth, only one, 
and it doesn't matter what they say they can't change it and and so thank you all of you for being here and for being so patient and generous with your time thank you to everyone for listening thank you to defeat the mandates for never uh, never giving up and staying the course and uh thank you everybody god bless and good night night everyone and um just so everyone knows we did record this so we'll be posting it on our um twitter page as well so thank you to all the speakers and everybody that was here tonight it was an awesome space so honored to be a part of it thank you Lindsay. thank you everybody take care To follow the people on the show tonight, then please check out our show notes to see their Twitter handles. Thank you.